Welcome to Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. My name is Josh Lyons. I've been listening to Hardcore and Punk since 1995. I have booked shows, put out a fanzine, run a record label, and now I'm doing a podcast. This is the Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Welcome to episode 42. As always, you can find the podcast on the web at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com. Make sure you give us a follow on Instagram, Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. I'm not sure if this will come out in time, but we're in the final days of the City Best of Rochester uh, voting, so make sure you give us another vote, uh, number 107, Best Podcast. Thanks to everybody who's voted so far, and like I said, if this comes out in time, keep voting. Uh, if the podcast wins, I got something pretty cool in store for Rochester, so more on that to come. Uh, we got a couple of cool shows coming up, too. Uh, October 1st, Only Shallows playing their first show with a couple other local bands and an out-of-town band. Uh, Sawyer Collective is putting it on, so check them out for more info. And then October 25th, uh, Slapshot and Sheer Terror playing here with Borrowed Time at Montage. So definitely make sure you check that out. So tonight's going to be pretty cool. Uh, we got Jimmy Stat, who is in a, a bunch of good local bands and one that's obviously pretty well known. So we'll be talking about all those as well as what he's got going on currently. So with all that being said, how's everything going for you tonight, Jimmy? It's good. It's good. You record these late. You got me up late tonight. <laughs> I apologize for that. Like we were talking about oh my beforehand God, no need. with the uh, with the kids. Uh, this is kind of like the only time I can really do it. So I kind of like it though, honestly. Yeah, some people uh, wanted to do it like at like three o'clock in the afternoon a couple times, and I was like, man, I could try to make that work, but that'd be kind of tough. So, are you generally like a night owl like this? I mean, is this is this the norm for you? Not really. Before this, like before we had kids, like I would have been asleep at like nine or 10 o'clock. <laughs> um, but now that we have kids, it's like the only time I can really do anything. So yeah. uh, like today, today was like my first day of uh, like Mr. Mom duties. I know you're a film guy, so I'm sure you know that movie. Yes. Um, so I was doing that today for the first time in a while with both kids. So I'm like, man, I'm actually looking forward to this because kind of sometimes to chill and have a little conversation, you know, so. Most of the dads, I, I don't have kids yet, but most of like the parents that I know are on a very similar schedule where it's like all of a sudden this nighttime hour becomes where they cram all of their them stuff into, yeah. you know, their independent stuff, so. Yeah, I remember when I was doing an interview a couple of weeks back, I started sending Rory a couple of text messages to kind of get his info. <laughs> and it was like the same time, like 1030. I'm like, oh, God, he owns that yeah. coffee shop. He probably has to be up so early. But he was texting me for like the next hour or two afterwards. You know, it's He's probably a bad time. Like, it's our time. Yeah. So. <laughs> so like I was talking to you before, I'm sure you've checked out a couple episodes. So uh, I'm sure you're familiar with what I like to kind of do first is talk about like the upbringing and stuff like that. So um, I guess kind of tell people like where you're from and just kind of, you know, the upbringing. Sure. Yeah. Well, so I'm from, I'm from Rochester. I'm from Fairport specifically, which I know a lot of your guests, previous guests are from as well. We'll probably talk a little bit about that. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, I, I was born and raised here and, and I, I mean, my, I grew up in Fairport. My mom was a piano teacher. My dad was a carpenter and, um, you know, we just bounced around around Fairport, essentially. I don't really know why, how or why we ended up there. I mean, my parents, my parents were kind of like hippie, more nomad people. I mean, like before I was born, my parents, they lived on a farm in Macedon in like a basement apartment, you know, with my sister who was a little bit older than me. And then uh, I came along and they moved to like uh, some apartments in, in Fairport and just kind of I don't know. We're, we're, we're roaming around there. It's just where I kind of ended up. But yeah, my mom was a piano teacher. 
my dad was a carpenter for most of my like childhood. Then he kind of uh, got into like bigger construction work. He became like a construction project manager. And then about 12 or 15 years ago, he started his own business. He runs his own pasta business. He like left all the construction stuff behind and now just a small business owner. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have, I had, I guess, you know, just a lower middle-class suburban upbringing. I, 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 I think maybe what was just different about my upbringing than most was just, you know, the, the musical side. I mean, it makes total sense that I got into music. Like I said, my mom was a piano teacher and a singer and my sister also uh, was a singer. My sister studied to be an opera singer. So I, I just, as far back as I can remember, I was hearing like singing in the background or a piano in the background. And I, I never really thought about it too much, but I think the biggest skill that that gave me was patience, like patience for rehearsal, patience for recording because because not everybody can like be in a recording studio for 12 hours a day it starts to drive you a little bit crazy um i can do that for some reason i think a lot of it has to do with just like i grew up hearing like toddlers and teenagers and everyone in between like messing up the piano all day like literally all day just oh let me start over like that was just that sound is like conditioned in me so i don't know but but yeah i mean like I said, just a pretty normal suburban upbringing. I think as a kid, like, I, I don't know, I didn't, I, I didn't take to much, you know, like I, I didn't really do sports. I didn't have an aptitude for that. It wasn't really until like music and band stuff that I really started coming into my own as like a individual. So I think you kind of started to, to talk about the next topic a little bit then too, with the musical interests, because it sounds like your family was pretty musically oriented. Yeah. Now, when did, like, if your mom was, like, a piano teacher, like, when did your interest in, like, becoming, like, not, you know, not, not even a musician, I guess, but just learning how to play music, like, when did that kind of tie into all this, I guess? Yeah, I, I guess, I, I don't think really till I was about 12 or 11 or so. I, before that, my mom was trying to get me into piano, and she knew, she knew well enough that I couldn't, I couldn't take lessons from her because I was just kind of a stubborn kid. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't take it seriously, you know? So she had a colleague teach me piano and I, I just didn't, I didn't, piano is a whole different beast. I mean, it's more, it's the real deal. You know, it's like, I, I, I'm not super like book smart like that. Piano is the smart kid instrument, you know, it's like, it's the, the two handed playing the sight reading, you know, I can play piano now by ear. I could play like rock piano, you know, I can't do like any two handed work though. I'm, I, I play dummy piano, but I knew music, music was just a part of me, but I, I needed to like find my own way into it. So like I said, I, I, I wasn't really into a lot of stuff when I was a kid. So my parents were constantly trying things, right? Like they tried like, oh, I'll try football. No, that didn't really work. Oh, here, try lacrosse. Okay, that didn't really work. And then my dad met this guy who was working at Lori's Natural Foods as like a checkout guy. And my dad's one of those guys who's just kind of like, um, He's like friends with any, everybody. He can strike up a conversation with anybody. So he met this guy at Lori's Natural Foods 
and he was a metal guitarist and he was like, yeah, well, I teach guitar lessons out of my bedroom at my parents' house. He was in like his thirties or something at the time. And I was about 11 or 12. And my dad was like, yeah, well, let's try this. And so we went to house guitars and we got like a $150, like shitty guitar, $75 shitty little amp. And I, I just disappeared into it. I just, I just fully immersed myself in it and it just clicked, you know, it just was like the only thing that ever incited passion in me, you know, like I, I and then, so I started taking lessons from this guy from Lori's and it was very non-traditional. He would like, he would tell me to bring him songs that I wanted to learn how to play and he would teach me how to play them. And at this time it was like, it was like Primus songs or like Rage Against the Machine was big for me back then, you know, stuff like that, Pennywise, you know, sort of middle school type stuff. But um, it was really formative for me. It taught me how to like, it taught me how songs worked. And, and like I said, my parents, they, t they think back on that time as like, when I hear them talk about that time in my life, they both say, it was like, you know, we just struggled to figure out what it was that you liked. And then we got you this guitar and we never saw you again. You just disappeared into your bedroom and you just played nonstop. And I instantly, I mean, it wasn't good initially, but I instantly started trying to write songs vastly long before I had any skills to do so. I just was, I, I just knew I knew how to spend time doing that. I didn't know what I was doing, but there was something in me that, that understood that process very early on, like 11 or 12. And then it just clicked for me from there and I was, I was off to the races. Yeah, it sounds like you kind of mentioned some of the music you were into then by that point. So like, when did you kind of like discover like actual like punk hardcore, like that there was kind of like a, like a different kind of scene for that kind of stuff, you know what I mean? A couple years after I started playing guitar, I mean, you know, when I was, 11 or 12 it was all like you know new metal and like blink 182 was just kind of about to explode um so that I, I mean very much like smashing pumpkins was big for me back then uh like early corn and limp biscuit and like skater punk new metal type stuff my sister is a little older than me and i i got into music a lot through like her like skateboarding friends but but before I kind of got into like punk and hardcore, there was a little bit of it, but just what was like delivered to me on the radio. But really it was like a lot of alternative MTV, MTV2, or like 120 minutes style MTV alternative rock, you know? Um, like, you know, Pavement, um, a little bit of Dinosaur Jr., but like more radio stuff too, you know, like Ben Folds and that type of stuff, Everclear, you know, that, that anything with a loud distorted guitar that seemed relatively honest to me is what I gravitated towards. Like I always had kind of an ear for like crap music, you know, I could tell, I, I always gravitated towards like raw, loud, whatever that was, right? And so when I was in middle school, it was like, you know, that type of music. A Couple years later, you know, as I was getting deeper down that rabbit hole and getting into like ska and skate punk, um, had a friend who was just like, hey, you know, they like do shows like this in Rochester. And that just was not, that, that wasn't 
a possibility to me, you know, at that point, like this was like 14, 15. I just, in my mind that all existed on MTV, like far away, you know? And like the fact that it was a possible thing in my town, I was just instantly like, let's go see that. What is that all about? You know? And then started going to like shows at the teen center, the Fairport teen center and seeing, you know, punk bands and metal bands and hardcore bands there. Um, and saw a lot of like really good, cool, raw stuff. But I think the first like hardcore show I went to, like the actual proper hardcore show uh, was Standfast. I, I saw a Standfast show at Eli Fagan. That might've even been one of your shows, I may, possibly. It was, um, it was Standfast and Unearth and Undying and Destro. And it was at Eli Fagan and it was like, I mean, I'll just never forget it to this day. It, it, it absolutely blew my head open. I mean, it just was like exactly what I was looking for, but didn't know existed. And like I said, I was always gravitating towards like what was just like raw and honest, passionate music. And once I saw that, it just was like, oh, this is it. This is the purest form of what I'm trying to do and be and listen to. And it just it blew the doors off. I mean, instantly, you know. Yeah, that Eli Fagan show, I definitely remember that one too. I think that was a John 25 show. That that was like the first, uh, I think, Stanfast record release show, but we didn't yeah. have the CDs yet. So it came out at the uh, Elliot, I think, Elliot and Weaker Thans, or however you say that man well, name. Well, that, that was what I was going to bring up next because mm -hmm. that show was the next week. That was the next weekend, I'm pretty sure. So, so my foray into like this scene right was going to that stand fast undying show and then just being like well i will <laughs> i will come to anything they do at this vfw hall i am i'm hooked whatever's happening here i'll be here and the next week was weaker thans and elliot that that show and i i still to this day think of that week period as being probably the most formative in not only my musical taste but just just who i am as a person right i mean because think about it this way i was 14 or 15 at this time and i always felt like um i didn't fit in you know like i i, I even if i liked skater punk i wasn't a good enough skater to really be in that world or i wasn't punk enough to really be in that world i was always kind of bouncing around from different things so when i saw that standfast show and then the next week saw that Weaker Than show and not only saw that show, but saw all the same people at the same venue, all the same people who the weekend before were moshing crowd, like, like Johnny piling, singing along, going crazy at this vastly different type of show and everyone was still just as into it in a different way that i think that got me to realize that matured me years faster than it did a lot of my people who were my age just to see like oh wait a second it's not all one thing it's not all about like being the most credible person in the room it's not about being the most like hardcore person there is it's just being into whatever it is you're into and that like dichotomy between those two shows 
that defines still to this day who I am and my musical taste. Those two weekends and, and the space in between them stylistically, you know, I still think back at that time as just defining, I, I just never looked back from there. That week span, I just wish I could like go back in time and relive that because it was like, it just blew my mind. Yeah, it's funny you would mention the, the diversity of the lineups too, because that's something I've talked about on here recently, because like even a couple of years before that, especially like in the late nineties, mid nineties here, like you would have like the professionals, which is like a ska band, the dense, you know what I mean? And channel three, yeah. so it was like the, all the scenes were, I mean, we even talked about like on my last episode, cause it was like a, a very influential show for a lot of people on that episode too. But what I'm getting at is, is it's very similar to what you're saying. Like they were well, just channel being, three too. I, I, it's funny you bring that up because that, so like I said, my sister was older than me and her best friend was Matt Woodward, the, the lead singer of Channel 3. So like Channel 3, that cassette was like the the first thing where I was like, wait a second, like 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 people that I know and talk to recorded a thing and I have it in my hands here. But like, but what you're talking about, that diversity of styles, that really is what defines, I think, a lot of like what Rochester, even to this day, is is still about. It's not that's not that wasn't the case in Syracuse hardcore back then. It wasn't the case in Buffalo hardcore back then. That was a specific to Rochester thing. And I've talked to a lot of people like from those scenes. Like PBC used to tour with Every Time I Die a bunch, and we would always talk about like you know Buffalo and Rochester. And those guys were always like, yeah, we thought Rochester was just weird. You know, we like, we just thought it was kind of a weird place. Not bad necessarily, but you guys had your own thing going on. And that very much is it, that diversity and acceptance. And I just think that's really cool. And I, 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 I still am proud about that, you know, and that's part of why I'm proud to say I'm from here, that type, type of like acceptance early on in our, our punk and hardcore scenes. Yeah, I think the diversity, it's, it's something I've talked about here a lot, too, because our local scene, as we'll get to with your bands, especially, too, like, you definitely notice, well, first of all, you notice, like, a Rochester sound for all the bands, but they're all, they're all very diverse, but, like, you can still somehow tell they came from here, if yeah. that makes any sense, you know? It makes total sense. So, um, I guess you kind of already referenced, like, early shows that were standout in your memory, then. Are, are there any other ones that, that kind of stood out, or are those, like, pretty much the main ones? There's one other one. Um, well, there's a bunch. I mean... I, I can't remember if this was one of yours or John's, but um, it was at Ellison Park, um, Carry On, Hope Conspiracy, and I think Every Time I Die and Thursday. Bright, Brighton Town Park, but yeah. Brighton Town yeah, Park, you yeah. Of, you got the line up right on the money otherwise. Yeah, right? that show, I mean, you look at that lineup like now, right? That's a flyer that you look at like, people who are younger than us that are into that type of band that's like a flyer you could sell on ebay right like that lineup is is insane and i just i don't i i still like with some of my friends who i'm still friends with from back then we still talk about that show just because again and the diversity on that i mean you, that, that that encapsulates it perfectly right there right i mean that was almost every type of hardcore <laughs> that, there, that there was to branch out into now. I mean, that show sticks out in my mind as just like, I mean, that was one of those shows which happened many times to me when I was younger, where like, I just was buzzing after that for days, you know, just like days and days and days just buzzing about that show. Um, so it, I, that one I always think about is like one of my absolute favorite times as like a young, 
you know, kid going to shows. But like, of course, all the old Bane shows and stuff too. That was, I, I think the first time I saw Bane, because, you know, I, I, I was a little younger, so I was coming to the game a little later than a lot of people were. I didn't actually see Bane until the Give Blood like record release. And it was at the Bug Jar, I think. And I remember just being like, I, I really like this band and um, finagling my way to the front and just having no idea what I had signed up for. I mean, honestly, fearing for my life, literally. <laughs> I mean, literally thinking I was going to be seriously injured throughout that show. But just, man, I think I saw them in total, like, over the next two years, I probably saw them nine times, you know, just traveling here and there to go see them. But of course, that's, Bane holds that spot in many people's hearts. But, but um, yes, all of those shows, Here's the other thing too, I, I got into that when I was young, right? And so because of that, I, I kind of call this like the Wegman syndrome, where like we, growing up in Rochester, you just kind of think like Wegmans is what it's like everywhere you go. Like every town has a version of Wegmans, right? And then you travel around a little bit and you realize, oh yeah, there's no Wegmans here. There's no like, there's nothing even close, right? I feel the same way about Rochester Hardcore from back then um, because, you know, I mean, I saw Bane at the Penny Arcade sold out. I mean, what capacity was the Penny Arcade? Do you think like 300, 400, something yeah. like that? There are so many places in the U.S., bigger cities than Rochester that didn't have as good hardcore scenes as that, right? And so just growing up, you know, I thought like, oh, that's just what it's like everywhere you go. So I, I, I think of myself as very lucky for getting into having that at that time in my life. When you start traveling around and, and, and meeting other people, that's not the case for a lot of cities. You know, a lot of people, because I think with like, you know, punk and hardcore, indie alternative, there's this like isolating element. If you don't have a community like we had back then, you can just be the only person in your town who's into that and you're totally by yourself and that's just a you thing. And it's a really lonely experience. I just thought every town was like our town in that respect. And I really like think that we were really lucky to have that at that time. Uh, it just completely, you know, formulated who I am now. But the perspective of that, I mean, I those two shows, Bane and that Carry On show, or One Dimension. There were countless versions of that. There were so many good shows. I mean, uh, City of Caterpillar at the Fairport DFW Hall. You know, like that show with the with the garbage cans and the glass shattering and stuff like that. Just not every town got to see those types of things, and and, and it was art. You know, it was really powerful art, and I got to see a lot of it really young. I'm lucky for that. Yeah, it seemed like definitely John and I would kind of go back and forth, like not, not like a friendly competition, like booking like these crazy shows like that back then, like, like who could like bring like the, the next crazy show to town. And, and I only benefited from it. I mean, literally yeah. you two, you two had so much to do with what was great about back then. And, you know, it, it just was amazing. It, it doesn't exist in the same way anymore for sure. But I mean, it was some sort of, that's also why I, I feel so, I feel like um, Greg's Instagram, the Hardcore History Instagram, I just think is so cool because it, 
that really was an important time and a special time. And the fact that he's documenting it in that way, I think is, is very, I, I give him a lot of props for doing that. I just think it's a really cool thing. It needs to be documented. Yeah, definitely. I was telling Matt Wirtz when I did that Building on Fire episode a couple episodes back, pretty much exactly what you were just saying, that I think that time frame, like nothing has really been like that since. Like there's yeah. there's been good scenes that have come along, but like we had a special, like like you're talking about the community vibe, especially, you know, like everybody, I mean, I'm sure you could probably find a couple of people that might argue this, but like it seemed like everybody who came to one of our shows during those years felt welcome in that scene too. Yes. You know what I mean? That that was the key distinction, at least from the Western New York scenes, right? And like I said, Syracuse was not so much like that back then. Right. Buffalo maybe a little bit, but Rochester really was. And a lot of this had to do with with Standfast and, and Rory and the precedent that they set um just as such right i mean just was truly come one come all here's the other thing too that you don't realize isn't the isn't the case everywhere you go i mean our our hardcore scene was very open-minded and accepting that is not the case for every hardcore scene that you go to for sure and i i i learned that a lot on the first tour i ever did with the disaster you know we were just going around to different scenes and like i said i was just a spoiled kid who thought like any town you go to, you can find a hardcore scene and they'll welcome you with open arms. And that, that's not the, just not the case everywhere you go. Maybe it is now, right? Because it just is more cool to be open and accepting and positive. But back then, that was special to Rochester. Of course, other places too, but it wasn't as mainstream as I, I assumed it was as a, as a young kid. Yeah, I didn't get to travel to a ton of other cities uh, in my younger years, but any other ones I came went to pretty much, I felt the same way. Like, and it's not like there people were assholes in the other cities, but it definitely wasn't as welcoming here. I mean, I could think of a couple cities like Erie where I met a lot of cool people, but like, especially here though, it was just like you know, like you're saying. I do actually, you won't, you might not be able to see them that well, so I'll, 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 I'll uh, read them off to you in a second. I, I do oh. have a couple of flyers prepped for this interview too. <laughs> I saw uh, the top I, one. I would have grabbed more if I knew you were going to be talking about so many cool shows, too. Oh, man. Um, one of them I just happened to grab by chance because I'm going to post it tomorrow. And then the other one uh, is one of the first bands years that we'll talk about. The, the uh, one flyer that I just saw you post, hold up there. Remi- I've, as we've been talking, I've been reminded of several other amazing shows that I could have mentioned. Either way, go ahead. Yeah. It's a part of this band, though, and it's something that's interesting that we'd be talking about this era because this is obviously right in the middle of that time frame. So uh one of the, the first band actually obviously i'll bring up of yours is fetty but were there any bands before that or there was a lot there well i mean nothing nothing worth talking about but i mean like like fetty was fetty was like a was the final form of like two or three bands as we were like figuring things out they were all was, awful like horrible was one of those bands called struck 92 yes, yes. i have a pretty good I, memory right i, I didn't want to say it I thought I, I had a pretty good memory it. though. I even, I even Googled it today. I was like, Struck 92, Rochester band, nothing came up. I was like, I want oh to spend yeah. had you guys on a St. Joe's show once. And that, and you that did. Was you you totally did. Yeah. And you were really young then, obviously, too, right? That was probably eighth grade or ninth yeah. grade. Yeah. Yeah. Our team, you'll be like, wow, this kid's really young. <laughs> you know? like, I can't believe so, you knew that. I sometimes like, my memory that's a nardwar moment right there yeah yeah i i just like bands like you know, i don't i don't forget especially like that's that's a random name too so i just kind of remembered it yeah that so that was like tech i mean the, the first band that i did where i mean fetty wasn't necessarily good by today's standards but that was the first band i did that 
it, it like coalesced a little bit, you know, the reforms and versions of it leading up to that, but that was like the, the best version of all of the crappy bands. I want to say for people listening to this interview that might not read the bio too, I know when we say Fetty, it might sound like something else, but it's actually spelled F-E-D-D-E, not F-E-T-T-Y. So two different uh, things. Correct. Yeah. So, but we'll talk about this show that I think you realized I held a flyer up for a second ago, but uh, uh, so were there members from the other bands in Fetty then you're saying, and then just kind of brought everything together. That was like how that kind of. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like um, the, the kids that I was, in school with that we we kind of found each other you know fairport's weird like fairport they don't do this anymore they just stopped doing this actually but fairport has like separate middle schools and then um a school that is just for ninth graders so you go to middle school then you go to ninth grade school with with the two separate middle schools and then you go to fairport high school all together 10th and 11th and 12th grade which is just a weird little way that I think Fairport had an extra building and they were like, how do we use this? And so they made this transitional ninth grade school. So those bands all came together as like the kids from the different middle schools who'd never hung out before, but were like all getting into the same type of stuff finally came together in this ninth grade school. And we're like, Hey, because when I was in high school, what was popular, the cool kids were like hippies. Like hippie music is what the jocks and cool kids all listened to. And I was never really into that stuff. So the punk kids kind of found each other pretty quickly. And that's when all those, those bands kind of formed. None of them really around much anymore, those people, but yeah. I guess I want to back it up just a minute then. So basically you're telling me that when you were going to the really like early standout shows for you, then you would have been in like in junior high then, right? I'm trying to think, I think when I, the Standfast show that I'm referencing, I think was the beginning of, I, 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 so I think actually Fairport Teen Center shows was junior high. Okay. And I think the Standfast show was technically freshman year of high school, maybe the end of eighth grade. Yeah. But either way, really young. Like that's super young, you know? super young. Yeah. yeah. Like when I was in those grades, I was seeing like Rancid maybe and like, you know, like, like the bigger stuff. Like I, I knew of the local scene, but not, not much hardcore at that point. So my first concert I ever went to was in seventh grade yeah. with, with my dad. And it was the Snowcore tour with Primus and Blink-182, but pre like with, with Scott still drumming in Blink-182. Like that was the first, I think it was at Harrow East. That yeah. was like the first concert I ever went to. The flyer I was holding up before, it's probably going to be inverted too, or whatever you call it on the. Yeah. So you can kind of tell. Oh, I remember this. Yeah. Ron Bike, Holy Angels, Coed and Cambria, and then Fetty opened. So I'm guessing I would have gotten a hold of you beforehand. Like, I don't even know how I would have known you. Like, maybe we would have talked at a show or something, or because there wasn't like social media back then, you know? You, I think. I don't know if this is correct, but I think Fetty actually dropped off that show. I think we canceled that show. There was one show. No, I'm thinking of something else. I'm, th- I'm thinking of something yeah. else. We played that show. We, we did play that show. Where was that show? That was at the Bug Jar. Yeah, we did play that show. Yeah, I think it was through... Huh. It might have been through... Because there was another kid in Fetty, a guy, Billy Mahalik. You might have talked to him about it, or you might have talked to me about it, either through email or one of the old message boards, maybe. Yeah. I, I can't remember, but that what a show that was. I mean, Small Brown Bike 
that was one of the other shows that I thought of as we were talking about it, because that was such a formative band for Polar Bear Club specifically. I mean, that was really what we were modeling ourselves after was Small Brown Bike. And that show was totally epic. A couple years after that, then um, Small Brown Bike and Casket Lottery played at Ellison Park. And that was just one of the best shows I ever saw to this day. But yeah, I, I, I would have been in probably ninth grade on that, that show, probably 15 or so. Yeah, we had Small Brown Bike here a lot. And they were obviously really nice guys. Did you ever end up playing with them later on in any other bands or anything? Or? No, they never. It was, it was weird because when Polar Bear Club started, it was very much that was what, that was what we were listening to. You know, and that's what hugely influenced us. I mean, was was them and Casket Lottery and those types of like, I don't, Hot Water Music, you know, like those bands that were like, you couldn't really define what it was they were doing. It was, it was aggressive, it had melody, but it was like poetic and, and, and artful at the same time. That was really what PBC was trying to do when we first started, but then as we just kept progressing, we, we just kind of aligned with different types of bands. We never, and by then small barn bike was kind of done and Casca lottery was kind of done, but uh, no, I never met any of them and never, I, 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 I always wish I had and had the opportunity to tell them like, Hey, like your bands were so important to me. They had a band that they all did together, Abel Baker Fox shortly after they stopped. And I saw them play and played a festival with them once, but never, never actually talked to them. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess I never really put the connection with Small Barn Bike with, with Fuller Bird Club, but I definitely uh, with Hot Water Music, obviously, which yeah. makes sense because the two are kind of similar, I guess, too. So did um, before we jump into the next couple bands, was there anything noteworthy? Did you guys record anything with Fetty or anything? We did. We, we, recorded, a, we recorded a split with a band called Eye to Eye, another band from Fairport. I, was that it? Was that all we did? I feel like there was one other thing. Maybe, maybe that was it, but we recorded it at, uh, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, there was this guy, George Schnell, who had a recording studio in Village Gate that you could rent out. And um, actually, Fetty recorded there and the Avram recorded a, a seven inch there um, or a split there. But it was this like middle-aged guy who just had recording equipment at like one of the lofts in Village Gate. This guy had no clue like what we were doing. We were so bad. I, I just can't even imagine what was running through his head as we were recording this stuff. Um, but yeah, we had, uh, it was like, we did like four songs and I think we did, we did, we did another recording after that, but I can't remember, I can't remember how we released it or, or what we did with it, but, but that was it. We never did like a full length or anything like that. Just like two little splits and EPs and managed to hobble sets together from that. I remember uh, Tears of Isaiah, one of Brian Rao and Kenton's old bands. I wanted yeah. to be recorded there too, because they they told me they recorded at Village Gate once. I can't imagine it would have been a different place, you know. Uh, we we got into there from someone else. Someone else was like, "This guy does recording," and it was yeah. if it wasn't them, it was like someone who was friends with them for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I saw them play the Teen Center a bunch. But yeah, it was like someone from that group probably showed yeah. us who That's who so that it's so weird that this guy was just like some clueless dude and you guys all ended up recording with him or whatever though. Yeah. I think it was just like, you know, such a different time where recording wasn't a thing that everyone did in some capacity. It was like, we have, well, what are our options? It was either Doug White in at Watchmen 
or whatever else you could find. And we just were like, ah, oh, we don't feel like driving out to Lockport. Let's do it in Village Gate. That's what I was going to say, because like recording and stuff hasn't really come up on a lot of these episodes because like half the bands probably did record with, with Doug. So it wasn't like a thing like this where there'd be like an interesting story like that or whatever. And, and Abraham I, recorded with Doug too. Um, yeah. And all those bands did back then. That was like yeah. the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just going to say, Doug, obviously he's a good dude. And I had uh, a couple records that I put out were recorded with him. So obviously, you know, bands preferred for him. So, you know, so I don't know what the timeline with these next couple bands. And I know they kind of, a lot, some of the, it seems like there was like shared members and stuff too with like Tam, Tamroff and the Avram. Yeah. Uh, were those bands kind of like around the same time or? Yeah, they were like, I, I think this would have been a little later. It's so funny when you get older, it's like two years passing is like nothing when you're in your thirties, but when you're 15 and then you're 17, it's like a light years, you know? So yeah, this all happened generally in the same like five year period, but in my mind, it's like different stages. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that would have been like 16 or 17 and Tamaroff started first that was me and chris brown from polar bear club and tyler smith from fairport and uh a couple other bands and then tyler farron from building on fire on the exam and then later brian vanetton would play drums in that too but yeah it was pretty much just like chris and i and tyler tyler smith all knew each other because we were about the same age and chris was from penfield and ty and i are from fairport and we just clicked because we were like the young guys who started going to hardcore shows. And so we naturally gravitated towards each other because we were super intimidated too. I mean, cause think about this, you know, I, I was 15 and John 25 was 25. Yeah. At, John's t 10 years older than me. Exactly. So like we were, and everyone else was, you know, 20 or 21 at that time. And so we were super intimidated. I mean, we were really, wanting to be there and, and loving it but we were very intimidated and so the kids who were my age kind of found each other and that's how Chris and I started playing together but yeah Chris and I did Tamaroff and and Tyler Farron and then Brian Vanetten joined and and we Tamaroff was really like very much like a Kinsella type band like Cap and Jazz or like a Screamo band that's when we were starting to get into that because that was a whole other side of of rochester hardcore too was like original screamo you know like um i hate myself and you and i and bands like that Sasha, you know stuff that like weirdly became popular again like five or seven years ago with like la dispute and touche those types of bands but back then really unpopular except for these like types of kids who like this type of stuff so we were trying to blend like screamo and more emo-y type stuff and do like kind of tech proggy type indie rock and i i just sang in that band but then like uh avram was more like tamaroff i in my mind felt like chris's band and i was just singing in it because the style was very much like chris's style the avram was more like my band like that was i was more directing the the style of that band and that was more kind of like refused you know like like uh i don't know uh, arty hardcore i guess um but yeah there was a lot of like tyler smith was in both of those bands there was we played together all the time and, and yeah very same time before i ask you more about the Avram, you were saying some stuff about tamroff there that, that i was thinking about prepping for the interview 
uh, again, like you were saying, talking about Rochester's diversity, like you could have had a whole show here with just the local screamo bands back then because you had oh, yeah. the exam. Uh, what was Josh Stein's band? He had one too around that. Uh, Quackatable Cannibal Society. Quackatable. I, I don't remember Silver's, but yeah, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, pretty much right. So that's. I can't you- believe I haven't thought about that band since yeah. I just said it right now. I can't believe I pulled that name out. <laughs> I, I thought about it too, but I was thinking about it when I was getting ready for the interview. I was like, "Yo, there was a lot of bands like that here." For sure. Obviously, sometimes I'm gonna show you a flyer in a second. Like some of the bands would end up on shows that they might not have necessarily. Like you could say they fit the bill, but like the headlining band was more like metal. But yeah, it was definitely influential, and and we had a lot of those bands. And another band you haven't mentioned that was that was coming through here a lot back then that I feel like had to have influenced a lot of these bands was uh, Majority Rule. Oh, for sure. I mean, that that's another example of like a band that I just thought like everyone knew. You know, like there were certain bands that were Rochester bands. I don't mean they were from Rochester. I mean they just had a following in Rochester for whatever reason. And Majority Rule was at the top of that list. I mean you know, I think people who are, are, are in the know regard them as a really cool band, but like, I just thought they were like a big band, you know, I, you would talk to someone in Boise, Idaho, and they would know who Majority Rule was, but that was not the case, but huge influence on the sound, and I mean, Jesus, that band was cool, I, I mean, that band informed so much of the Rochester sound, but not only that band, but also Salad Days as a recording studio where they recorded a lot of their their stuff. And that sound, that specific sound from Brian McTernan's studio, for whatever reason, Rochester, same with Strike Anywhere, same with uh, Bane, and same with um, Child by Fire, uh, The Explosion, a lot of these bands that recorded that studio that just for whatever reason, Rochester really glommed onto it was like that early jade tree stuff and obviously a lot of bridge nine stuff too but yeah majority rule huge huge influence i mean that music i haven't listened to majority rule in years but it's like that would be like riding a bike if you press play on that record right now i would just know every second you know just was obsessed with those those records yeah yeah those uh, same same exact thing for me because i i don't I don't know if this is one of the records that I bought last year. I either bought it or I listened to it like on Spotify or one of those streaming things. And it was the same thing. I was like, man, I haven't heard these songs. Right back, right like, back in. Yeah. Is that the, I, I'm like, I'm not getting music, but you know, the one where the drums kick in and I was just like, Oh yeah, dude, they were the drum along band. You would watch them. I remember watching them. I saw them at like an apartment at RIT once. Uh, I can't remember. It had a, some name. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what it used to be called, but they used to do shows there. It was on campus, you know, it was like on the dorm. And I remember just looking around and everyone was drumming along to like all the drum parts. No one was singing along. Everyone was like drumming along. I just thought that was so cool. Yeah. Yeah. They were a great band. So super good. Actually, I almost forgot. This is before we jump into the Avram. This is a flyer. And this kind of shows the diversity of Rochester and like your band and all the other bands. that. Oh my God. I think this would have been 2003, but I'm not positive. Hey, it's September 15th right now. That's why, that's why I have it out, because I'm going to post that's it amazing. tomorrow. Like, this is going to air either the 15th or 16th. So, and I try to post flyers occasionally, like, the, the day they, the show happened. So, yeah, it's Unearth, Building on Fire, Ed Gein, Tamroff, The Red Death. And I'm pretty sure, if this is the one that happened in 2003, I think Siopus might have ended up playing this, too. So Where was like, that? That was at the Penny Arcade. Wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, like, some of those bands are more, like, metal 
like tangent or whatever but like you still have like some of the screamier bands too like for sure you know so it was just all the same to us back then yeah. you know like i mean I, I don't mean we were totally ignorant to the different styles but it, it just was it was truly come one come all it was just like it, it was all the same type of stuff in our minds it was it was generally the same people right or friends of friends of all the same groups making this music and it just was good vibes and and I, 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 it's tough to explain, but it's it that is what you're saying is specific to Rochester, probably other places too. But 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 you know that's a very Rochester special thing. Yeah. So then, the Avram. Now, am I saying it right? Avram, Avram. I always wondered. We used to say the Avram, but I don't think it matters. You know. Yeah. <laughs> tomato, tomato. I guess. Exactly. Now, <laughs> now that band. And again, I know we're going back to, and, and I've had the conversation with other people you mentioned about like the light year thing about like when you're a certain age, like two years feels like 20 years. And now like two years ago now, especially now with me having kids and just like, you know, right. being older and doing more things, you're like, man, that, that was like yesterday. It was this, exactly. It's all yeah. slowed down and everything. Yeah. Um, but did those bands exist? Like, at, I can't remember either. Did they exist at the same time kind of, or? Avram and Tamara? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they did. They, they, they had some crossover um, for sure. Um, I don't think we ever we never played together. We never like did double bills like that, but they were around at the same time. I guess what stands out for me, and I know I want to say you probably played your last show there too. Uh, and I had put in my notes to make sure we talked about a lot of these venues. And this is the only one we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, that Lyle Ave show space was yes. like pretty prevalent around. I feel like around the time that, that this band was, was around, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, that place, it, did it have a name like a, a certain, they were they were trying to name it, but I always refer to it as the Lyle Lab space. I but, always did, even after they came up with a name, because I was thinking about this while prepping the interview tonight. I was like, man, dumb. Uh, Club Sandwich is what they That's right. Up. Club yeah, Sandwich. I was always it never, kinda, really, you know, it never really took. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like it at all. So I still kept calling it. The, I think I even put on flyers still like Lyle Lab show yeah. space, even after they named it that, because I was like, I'm not going to call it that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I forgot about it. And that's probably yeah. a, a, a testament to how poor of a name it was, is I didn't even remember that. But, but yeah. yeah, it was that time for sure. I think because I... I think I saw the beginning and end of that venue. I'm pretty sure. I think I was actively going to shows for when that started all the way through to when it ended. Mm -hmm. I, I think if I'm thinking of the timeline correctly, but yeah, Tamaroff played there a bunch of times. I actually don't think the Avram ever did play there unless no. you've got a flyer proving me wrong, but I, I, I don't think we ever did. I think we I've gotten this mixed once. up before. I think for some reason I thought your last, maybe it was the last Breaking Project show was there. The last Breaking Project show yeah. was there and I announced them. I okay. introed them. Yeah. And Tamaroff, I think, played that show. That's why I want to get The last Avram show was at the Bug Jar. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what what would you want to say about that band, like sound wise, especially too? The um, Lyles Club? No, 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 the Avram, because we haven't we oh. haven't really talked about them too much yet. So the Avram holds a really special place in my heart, mainly because the one full length record that we did, it's called Into the Minds. And to this day, of all of the records that I've been a part of, that record was the one. When you, when you make records, anyone that you've had on the show, anyone who makes music will say the same thing. It never quite comes out exactly like you hear it in your mind. It's always, it's always not quite as good as you hear it in your mind, right? 
that into the minds avram record was the one time that i made a record that it came out sounding better than it sounded in my mind it just the idea was fully realized it was fast aggressive short and to the point and just sounded really good i still to this day think that record sounds really really good um so it holds a special place in my mind stylistically it was kind of like when you when we talk about all these bands like we are like you know the hardcore metal punk screamo post-punk post-hardcore it kind of was all of that distilled into one thing but really the closest equivalent i could find to it would be like refused you know or like hadea was the other band going at that time that was similar just kind of like not really like any breakdowns or anything not really very straightforward but still individual you know just kind of artsy hardcore but still poppy it wasn't necessarily tech the songs were all pretty short but it wasn't like punk it wasn't hardcore still kind of in that like small brown bike kind of space but more aggressive than that it was like more a more screamy faster small brown bike but i i loved making that record and i still listen to that record from time to time it just takes me right back and i just love the way i, I love the way it sounds still to this day and of all the records i've been a part of you know i like them but i don't love them at a certain point i feel like i'm settling right like i'm just like all right well this isn't quite as good as it sounded in my mind let me work with what i have here that record just came out exactly if not better than what i had envisioned in my mind i think a lot of people that are hear us talking about polo Road club in a few minutes will probably be surprised that you would say that about a previous band. <laughs> uh I, I definitely want to ask you though where did you record that i, I can't remember that that album we we recorded um at a short-lived studio in Canadagua called Hopewell, where uh, Dave Drago and Jake Rodenhouse had a small studio on the main street in Canadagua. Um, we recorded there. It was just a house that they had turned into this studio. Um, Hidea recorded there. Disaster recorded our last EP there. Tamaroff recorded there. Um, bunch of bands. They were doing all sorts of stuff like that. It was only around for a couple years. And then yeah. now Dave has 1809 studios in Macedon, but that was his studio back then. Yeah, I remember Hope, uh, obviously, for the reason you just mentioned, all those albums were recorded there. Yeah. It seemed like there was, there was definitely a couple a couple of places people were going then. And then, you know, for, for obviously word of mouth, once you start talking to people about recording stuff, then, you know, you keep... Oh, you went there? It sounds good. I'm going to go there too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So you're kind of talking about the disaster a little bit. I When we started prepping this, for this interview, like... Uh, I guess I, I hit you, you up like two or three months ago, honestly. I had gotten kind of confused because I thought you had sang for the disaster on that tour, but you reminded me that it was LaForge that sang yes. for them. I forgot you would actually play guitar for them. So you, you were in the band, like at the end of the band for a couple years then or, or for a little while? Yeah, I joined them at, at, right as they were releasing the first full length, the red and white and black all over full length. So I was I didn't play on the first seven inch, but um, they were getting ready to release that full length they were possibly going to start doing some more serious touring and um, they wanted a second guitarist. They wanted to like fill out the sound. I don't know how I got that gig. Honestly, I really don't know how I, I, I think I, I, I sort of remember, remember they used to do shows at Java's in the basement. I think the Avram played a show there and Brian or John came up to me and was like, Hey, we're trying to do this. And, you're pretty good guitarist you want to maybe do it think about doing it 
And I, I think I like tried out, we practiced at John's old apartment over on, uh, over on Amherst Street across, uh, uh, behind uh, show, show World. And I remember we hauling all my gear up into that attic and just like practicing with them the first time. And again, I was at that time, I was 16 or 17 and they were all 22, 27, you know, I was really just like, I was the baby in that, in that group. But yeah, I joined right before they released that first full length and I was with them all through the end. That was, we did a bunch of like small winter tours. We did two full U.S. tours over the summers. And the second one that John Herring didn't go on is the one that Matt LaForge uh, sang on. But like, yeah, that was my first time touring. So they all had to, like, like I said, I was the baby in that band. Every single one of them, John 25, Jeff Walter, Brian Vanetten, and John Herring, had to come to my parents' house in Fairport and sit down with my mother and convince her to let me go on this tour because I, like I said, I wasn't really into anything other than this type of stuff. And all of a sudden I'm getting ready to go on, I'm 17, I'm still in high school and I'm getting to go on a tour. And I was like, I'm doing this. And my mom was like, no, you're not. I was like, I, I, I don't care what happens, but I, I have to do this. And so she was like, okay, I want to meet all these boys, bring them all over to the house and I'll see if they're like good kids. And of course, you know, they were all straight edge at the time and, and you know, they were all nice, good people. So my mom was, was convinced and, and yeah, I went on my first month long us tour playing second guitar in the disaster. I do remember what you just said now about you, about them all having to convince yeah. Because I remember John telling me that story when they were going to go on tour and think oh it was funny. I can still see it. I can still see them all like sitting in my dining room, all of them covered in tattoos. You know, and John's this big guy, you know, yeah. sitting down at the dining room table to convince my mom to let her baby go on tour. Was that first US tour? Was that just them or was that, or were you guys with other bands too? We had, um, I'm, I'm really bad with remembering what happened yeah. when. We had little stretches where we met up with certain bands. I can't yeah. remember if this was the first tour or the second tour. The first tour, we did a stretch with the Hoods, uh, the Sacramento band, hardcore yeah. band. We got out to the West Coast and did a couple shows with them. Um, we did a couple with, um, I think we did a couple with Miles Between Us then, if not a winter tour. Then we were always close with like those Baltimore bands. So we did yeah. stuff with like Warren Finn and. Um, Looks uh, like rain probably. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But then I can't remember if it was the second tour or the first one. We did a significant amount with Strike Anywhere and From Ashes Rise. I wow. think it was the second one though. I think it was the second one. We did yeah. like two weeks of the month with them wow. or something, but That's a lot right. of it was just on our own. If we, yeah. we, but we was a lot of piecing things together, you know? So we'd be with, uh, some of it was with, we did a big chunk with Modern Life is War too. We toured with them really early on and like we're, we're touring with them before they kind of blew up. And I still like I, a lot of what I saw touring with them, I held with me through my years with Polar Bear Club because they, Modern Life is War, even before they were like what we know them as now, no matter what, 
they did the same level show, like the same level intensity, no matter what. So I played with them in disaster to like really amazing shows with 200 kids jumping on each other. I played with them in like really shitty shows where there was three people there. The show was exactly the same with three people, the 200. And I just remember seeing that and being like, that's really fucking cool. And we tried to do PBC like that, largely influenced by, by them and, and other bands like that. But yeah, I think those, that was the only like significant bands that, that, that those disaster legs were with. You reminded me, I can't remember my memories. It's good of shows, but sometimes years get mixed up. It was either 2002 or 2003. I'm guessing you would have been in the band by then though, because it was a tour with Miles Between Us. Uh, I booked the last sh- date of the tour here for that. It was like Bane, the At disaster. The yeah, what feeds yeah. the fire? Miles yep. between us, embrace today, maybe, and like one other band. I played that show. I threw yeah. my back out at that show, actually. Really? Yeah, I was like rocking too hard and threw my back out. I hurt. My, I was like, I was so thankful that was the last day of tour because I really fucked my back up at that show. But that was a really fun show. Wow, if I if I threw my back out now, I'd be on the couch for like a week. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I wouldn't be able to. But oh, my seventeen-year-old uh, self uh, healed yeah. quicker back then. Yeah, I went to a show a couple weeks back, and I was thinking that I was like, man. Uh, too old for like the Danny Glover shit. I'm too old for this shit now. Man. It's not the same. It's just not the yeah. same. Yeah. I was supposed to go to uh, my wife and I, you know, we were just feeling like pandemic fatigue. We, we, we dealt with a lot of stuff throughout the pandemic and we were like, all right, we're going to go to Pitchfork Fest. A lot of our favorite bands were playing. We're going to, we never do that type of thing, right? We, we never go to like festivals or anything. It was in Chicago. It was last weekend. We had to cancel because we had this issue with our dog and uh, we didn't end up going, but they live streamed it. And so we were watching the live stream in our living room and we both looked at each other. We were like, this is better than being there. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is significant. This is the old person's version of it, but yeah. this is a lot better than being there, isn't it? Yeah. That's one thing that happens to me a lot now. Cause now like, especially being 40 and having kids, but now I'm like, I'm doing this podcast. So I feel kind of obligated to like go and like support like shows more and like go to sure. local stuff. And I'm like, the one I went to a couple weeks ago started at three o'clock. So that was easy, you know, but like oftentimes it starts at like seven or eight, maybe nine or 10, oh, if man. you're not that lucky, you know, yeah. And I'm, yeah. you know, I don't drive. So I might have to catch an Uber back or it's just, it's uh, just a different world, man. It's yeah. just a different world, you know? Yeah. It's, I don't Getting know. Old. Being I definitely old. don't, I, you know, I definitely want to support, support the bands, obviously, but yeah, it's tough sometimes. So now I remember the disaster broke up in like late 2003. So did you have a little off time in between bands or were you doing the Avram still uh, before Polar Bear Club? So I, I'm trying to think, I can't remember. Because Polar, Polar Bear Club was like 2005 that you guys started, right? Yep. We started in 05. But so, yes, I actually. I don't think the Avram did much after the disaster. I can't remember if, if we did, it would have been very little, but essentially I graduated high school in 03 when disaster ended. So I went off to college and I, I was doing that. And honestly, I, I, I actually think Tamaroff did a little bit in there. We recorded our last little EP somewhere in there. I don't think we ever really played a show on it, but we did a record in there, but I remember Polar Bear Club starting just about my my second to last or last year of undergrad. So I did all I I kind of thought I was in that time. I, I thought I was done doing bands. I, honestly, I, I I just was like, I, that's that part of my life is done. I don't do that anymore. And Polar Bear Club started 
before me. It, it, the, the first Polaroid Club demo was recorded before I was in the band. They didn't have a singer when they recorded that demo. Chris asked me, like, hey, we, we got this band together. We like the music. We don't have a singer. We recorded this demo. Do you want to sing on this? Like, I, we just don't know who else to ask, you know? And I kind of did it begrudgingly. I, I didn't really want to do it. But I remember listening to the demo and trying to kind of like write melodies to it. Actually, here's what happened. So a couple years before that, Chris recorded these solo songs with our friend Kate, who was a recording. I went to SUNY Fredonia and Kate was a recording major at Fredonia. And Chris did this project for one of her school projects. And the, the music was very similar to the first Polar Rick Club demo. And I sang on that I, just as like a favor to Chris. And the songs are actually really cool. We, we just really, actually, Chris and I just unearthed them. And I was telling Chris, I was like, dude, you got to release these. They're still really cool. So those songs might come out. But it was kind of on the backs of that. And so Chris, year after that, had this band going. And he was like, hey, you helped me with this other thing. You want to do that with Polar Rec Club? So when I did that, I, I, I thought I was just helping a friend. I didn't think I was joining the band. I didn't think I was going to be in it. But I, I sat down with the recording and I started like writing the melodies and the lyrics. And I just started, it just pulled me into it. I just started getting really excited about it. I was like, I could see it. I could, I, I remember working on it in my bedroom and I was writing some lyric or a melody or something. And I was like, damn, this would be really fun and cool to do this live. And I just could kind I could see it. I could see it working live. And so I was like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll do this. And then I was like, Hey, I'm just, let me just be the singer of this band. I'm in. And, and I remember Chris was even like, well, I thought you didn't really want to like do bands anymore. And I was like, yeah, but I, I got to do this. You know, like, I, I don't know what else the fuck I'm going to do. And so Polar Rick Club started without me. And then, yeah, I, I just ended up singing on that first demo and just, it, it just clicked. And honestly, like, so that would have been 2005. And this was um, right around like MySpace time. And so we recorded that demo, sat on it for a little bit, and then just self-released it on CD and put a couple songs on MySpace. And it just, it just took off like it, like weirdly polar bear club would not have been a band if it wasn't for myspace i mean really that was the catalyst that that started the whole thing and that we just all of a sudden like people were messaging us from california from japan from england just being like what is this you you gotta you gotta come to my city and play this i remember even going to a party in rochester and meeting some people that I didn't know and never met before. And they weren't like showgoer hardcore people. They're just random people. And we're just shooting the shit. And they were like, Oh, what do you do? I was like, yeah, we're in this band polar bear club. And they were like, Oh my God, you're in polar bear club. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, aren't you from Rochester? Like, like, why is that like a thing to you? Don't you like know us from like our old shitty bands we used to do? And they're like, no, we heard you on MySpace and thought it was so cool. And like, it just worked. It just became a thing that worked, but it really started out. I didn't want to do it at the start, but then just, just kind of got roped into it. Not, not by anyone else, but, but me, I got roped into it because it was good and I liked it. You know, that's really crazy to think about. Like, obviously as we'll talk about in a minute where the band ended up going and you like, and in, in the beginning didn't really even want to 
you know. I thought I was done with bands. I thought I was like on to the next phase of my life. And it just, just, it just kind of called to me, you know. I wonder who would have ended up uh, taking the call if it wasn't for you at that point, <laughs> I guess, you know. So I know we had kind of talked in the beginning about how like Rochester was a little different in Syracuse and Buffalo than like we were a little more accepting. However, there were like a lot of cool people that we all knew in Syracuse that we're friends with and kind of uh, networked with. So like how, like how soon into the band starting did you guys have people from Syracuse in the band? Was it like right away or was it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. So when Polar Bear Club first started, um, it was, well, actually, no, it was, it was actually, um, it was me and Chris and uh, uh, Kevin Mahoney and Josh Dillon, all Rochester people. And then Bob O'Neill, who was the original drummer of Another Breath from Syracuse era. So that was like the first lineup of, of Polar Bear Club. And then, you know, people started coming and going. Kevin left and uh, Nate Morris from Stand Fast Marathon came in. And then Bob left. And so we were looking for a drummer. Actually, no, then Josh Dillon left and Greg from Breaking Project came in on bass. And then Bob left. And so we were looking for a drummer. And Nate was in Marathon. So he knew Emmett from Syracuse. And then Emmett came in and, and started drumming. And then our bass player left. And Emmett knew Eric because he was from Syracuse. So it was, it was kind of a snowball effect of like the merging of these, of these two cities, I guess. But yeah. it, it was, the seeds were, were laid early on. Yeah, it definitely seemed like it. I mean, like I said, like, I, I feel like probably, honestly, right around the time you were getting really heavily into it, like we were talking about earlier, like 2000, 2001 is around the time where, where to me anyways, it seemed like Rochester and Syracuse had more of a connection with like, uh, like Head On and Eternal Youth and bands like that, you know? And yes. I feel like you know, you guys just kind of carried the torch, so to speak. Totally. And while we're on the topic, just as a quick aside, I, 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 to this day, Head On was and is, I think, the best Rochester hardcore band that there was. That that band, to me, and their two cassettes, I wore those cassettes out so much. I don't, I don't know, not a lot of people know this story. Um, I think I've told it to Brian, I, I think. I was so obsessed with Head On, and th like this was 2001, 2002, so I was in ninth grade, right? I was a dumb kid. I'm still embarrassed by this, despite the fact that I'm 36 now and I was 15 when this happened, but I was doing, this was like Fairport Teen Center days. The, so before the city hardcore scene, sort of, I started going to that, I was doing shows in the suburbs in the Fairport Teen Center or like random houses in Benfield. And it was kind of this, our own little thing, right? It was like hardcore light or diet hardcore, you know? And the people from like the real Rochester hardcore scene never came to these shows, right? It was, it was not cool, these shows. It was young kids. They never came out to these shows. So this band I was in, I can't, I don't remember the name, but it was like a hardcore band that played like three shows we we eventually turned into what fetty was we were playing the teen center and like you know we were young and dumb we didn't know like what was cool and what wasn't cool so we decided we were going to cover a head-on song <laughs> <laughs> at our set at the fairport teen center okay thinking like you know we just love this band we just want to play this music and you know the guys from the city never come out to these shows right so whatever no one's going to know oh, no one's going to care this happened to be the one Fairport Teen Center show that every single member of Head On was at. I think everyone <laughs> except for Beardy, the singer. I think John was there. I think Motion was there. And I think Brian was there. 
before I knew them, before we were friends. So they're sitting there. I'll never forget this as long as I live. They're sitting there, like watching the bands play, and all of a sudden we break into a head-on cover. I'll never forget this. I think John and Brian both stood up, laughed, and just walked out. (laughs) (laughs) I'll never forget this as long as I live. I'm sitting there covering their band as some dumb 15-year-old, and they just, I remember, just were like, oh my God, this is such bullshit, and just left. But yeah, that was a quick head-on aside. I felt I had to tell that story. Not a lot of people know that. I'm still embarrassed by it to this day. Well, uh... Hopefully they, hopefully they all hear it. Uh, yeah, I feel like I've told Brian about that or I've brought it up to him yeah. since, but yeah. So speaking of funny random stuff, I'm listening to Polar Bear Club prepping for this and there's some bands that I listen to and you were kind of talking about this like with the demo and hearing the stuff and realizing it was really good. Are you familiar with uh, like Eddie Murphy party all the time? Yes. Have, you the mu- have you seen the music video for it? yeah like have you seen how excited those dudes get like in the studio like when they're oh, when yeah. going in there in the booth to do the vocals oh yeah like was there ever any and i'm not comparing it to that obviously but like was there ever any time any point in time where you recorded any of these polar bear club albums or tracks where you're like yo this is like we got this shit right you know what i mean you know, like it's so funny you bring that song up because that song was kind of a big song for polar bear club we loved that song that was like a song we would put on a lot just as like a silly dance party song goose yeah. was really into that song it's a good song I, too i had no idea about that too that's just so funny i had no idea of that um you know no honestly no i, I think so because you know i had i had done by the time polar book was going i had been doing bands for a number of years and i had recorded albums i honestly by the time pbc did our first demo and first EP. I just thought it was just uh, like all the shit I'd been doing before. It just was the same thing, just the next thing to do. The time where we realized we kind of had something or like when I started to find my like voice and the band started to find our actual like communal voice was the first full length. Sometimes things just disappear. And I think we, we, we took that record really seriously and and up into that point the demo and the ep we certainly took it seriously I mean, we took everything seriously but the first full length was a little different we were all really focused and really in sync and i think we left that recording thinking like it was that was make or break we all loved that record right out of the gate but i remember we got home from recording that album and we had a friend that we played it for before it was released. And this friend was a big fan of the demo and the EP and he wasn't into it. He was like, I don't know, this just isn't like, this is, I just don't really like it. You know, it's it's cool, it's whatever, but it's just not like, I like the demo and the EP better. It's like, okay, cool. So we kind of thought like, oh shit, you know, like we, we, we really like this record, but no one else is really gonna respond to it. But, um, that really was kind of the defining moment record for us that first full length that was really when the sounds really coalesced and i don't think we i don't think we knew that going out of it but there was something that forced us to just take that record really seriously and i think it wasn't so much that we knew we had something i think it was more just that we 
we knew we wanted something. We, we knew we knew that we were taking this band a little more seriously than the other bands. We couldn't really explain why, but I, I think we knew like, you know, at that point, it seems even silly to say, but we were in our early twenties at that time. And after doing all these bands all throughout our teenage years and up until then, I think we were just like, okay, this isn't a game anymore. Right. It's not like, it's still very fun for us, but it's like, it's also something else. And I think we knew that, but that was just really based off of our own want to be in a serious band, not necessarily because we thought we had something good, even though in the end, I, I think people think of that as our, our best record. I, I, I don't know. I, people have different records that they like of ours, but I think that was the first one that really kind of popped off. Yeah. I was going to say like, obviously since then, like bands like such gold and sirens and sailors have come out of Rochester and been like more well-known like nationally and internationally. But I feel like you guys and roses are red were like the first two bands that really like kind of like kicked down that door for like, obviously like, like other bands from here had gone on tour, but like you guys were like the first two like bands that really like, I don't want to say put Rochester on the map, but you know what I mean? Like people more sure. knew that there was music coming from here. For so sure. what I'm getting at is kind of what you were saying before with taking it more seriously. Like, did it give you pause writing lyrics? Like, and I guess, did you always write all the lyrics or did other people like in the band help you with them or? Yeah, I wrote, I wrote all the lyrics and um, I wrote, I, I wrote all the lyrics and all the vocal like melodies, you mm -hmm. know, although on that first Polar Bear Club record, the producer, uh, John Niclerio, who uh, recorded the first Polar Bear Club EP, he also recorded the marathon full length and a bunch of other stuff since then he helped out significantly with like, not the lyrics so much, but the vocal melodies. Mm -hmm. He really taught me like how to write vocal melodies, but lyrics I always did. Um, Emmett too had a hand in a lot of like the melodies. Like when we were recording those vocals in the room, it was me and the producer and Emmett. And it was a lot of just like, oh, you're like taking that melody up, maybe take it down or maybe do it like this instead of like that. So lyrics though were always all me. But it's funny because um, I can't remember if it was on the EP or on the first full length, but I, I did have a day where I kind of had a bit of a panic attack. Um, and it wasn't so much from like pressure or anything like that, or thinking like this has to be good. It was more so just like figuring out how to actually sing, like how to, how to make my voice do what it did on those records because it didn't really come super naturally. It was, it, was, it, was, it, it was a lot of trial and error to figure out that sound. And at the time of doing those records, I wasn't really good at recording, especially recording singing, because like, I, I, I do it a lot differently now than I did then. But back then, you know, you're practicing in a room with a shitty PA, the band isn't even really hearing what the vocals sound like until you're recording them in the studio. And honestly, you are not even really hearing what they sound like until you're recording in the studio. So like you're writing and judging and recording all at the same time. And it just was like too much for me at that. I didn't really have fun recording that record because I was really nervous that I was really doing bad, really, really performing poorly because it just was hard to record that record. And so we, that was another reason we didn't really know what people were gonna think of it because we just were like, 
this is kind of weird. This is different. This is this singing style is a little not something we had done before exactly. We kind of toyed with it, but um, but no, I, I think the lyrics. I, I've never. I've never felt pressure about writing lyrics. I've always felt really comfortable writing them. I, I've always, I've always tried to get better at it solely for the purpose is solely for my own growth, not for any reason of like, well, this has to be a big sing along or this has to be a big chorus or this has to be X, Y, and Z. It's always come from, I just want to be a good lyricist and I, that's, that's it. But I've always been comfortable writing lyrics. It's always been something I've, enjoyed doing i can't remember if i meant mentioned this when we were talking about the show that i booked for them earlier but when i was getting ready to, to do this interview tonight after the, my son went to sleep i, I had the carry-on record on I'm, I'm one of my earphones and uh i'm just thinking to myself like how crazy it is that like bridge nine was so influential to us back then and then you guys ended up like doing that like yeah. were there like i guess i guess there's a few questions with that like i guess number one would be like were there other labels interested like when you first like signed with bridge nine so to speak yeah, we so we talked to a couple of labels. Um, we talked to um, what are they? What's that fucking label called? Um, oh my god, I can't remember the name. Bane's old record label. Oh, Equal Vision. Equal Vision. We talked to Equal Vision. Um, Rev. I think we talked to Rev like a little bit. They were kind of not doing a lot they sort of came back a little bit after that with like the title fight stuff and all that. But we talked to equal, equal vision talking to bridge nine. We talked to, uh, there was some label that was like an offshoot of epitaph, not a big one, but like a new thing. We didn't really get courted by a lot of labels. We got courted by more managers than labels. We talked to a lot of like managers who wanted to manage us, but bridge nine came in pretty early and we, just liked what they were doing. I mean, we liked them as a label. We didn't really think we fit them in terms of like the brand, but the time we signed to them, they had this new guy doing A&R signings, um, Carl Hensel, who's now uh, works for, uh, he's like, he works for Epitaph, the merch company of Epitaph. He, Carl was vehemently trying and it was part of his like mission there was to kind of like not rebrand bridge nine but expand it have this other leg of it that was more like bands like us so he signed us they signed strike anywhere around the same time all crime and stereo was there but crime and stereo still was kind of like a better fit than even we were so it was kind of a part of a movement they were trying to do where they were still trying to do what they were known for but also have this kind of post-punk pop punky side to it as well. But we honestly, we really just clicked with Carl and he, he spoke our language. We liked what they were offering. We of course liked the label just from being fans of hardcore. So we, we, we liked Chris too and, and met with them. It just made sense. You know, it, we, 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 we it, it just made sense. We didn't overthink it to be honest. Um, but there wasn't a lot of interest, you know, there was, labels of that size maybe here and there but um it wasn't like major labels were interested or anything like that it was it wasn't like we like were people were batting down our door necessarily but there was a handful 
I guess before I forget to mention though, like you mentioned major labels, like towards the end, like when you guys had done a few albums, did any major like bigger labels start coming your way then, or was it still like more like DIY type stuff? I mean, the biggest labels that we talked to were like Epitaph, you yeah. know, the, that size. So nothing like major, major, but larger indies here and there, yeah. but nothing ever came of it. No Dave Geffen or Tommy Boy or anything on that? Nothing, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, Unfortunately. It, there, obviously, like I mentioned, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, good releases to talk about and we, you know, we only have so much time. So if I miss stuff, you know, let me know there's more stuff you want to talk about. But some stuff I'm kind of curious to hear about with you is, is like the touring because there's a lot of bands you toured with and places you toured to that I'm obviously envious of. Um, like when did that all start to pick up? Was that like when you got on Bridge Nine or was it even before that? Um, we started touring full time in 2008. That was when we uh, started, and I don't think, I don't think we were signed to Bridge Nine when we first started touring. I think we were still working with Red Leader, uh, that that label, because they did our first EP and first full line. That really started from us. Uh, I, I mean, internally, we just kind of all looked at each other. weirdly this is a weird inspiration for us starting to tour full-time this is going to sound kind of lame but i don't know if you remember this but around that time no effects had a reality show about touring it was called backstage pass yeah and you know it it was a fine show it wasn't like an amazing show but it was on at the time where polar bear club was starting to get like some heat and for some reason, like we all were really into that show and it just made the whole thing kind of seem possible to us. And we just, I think it was really Emmett who, who started the conversation. We just, we just looked at each other one day and we're like, we could do that. We, we could, we could do that. Let's do it. And so we just did it. Like we, we got in touch with like a booking agent that was interested we bought a van and we just did it like we 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 just did it and got in touch with like some bands i think that first tour that first like professional tour was um like uh broadway calls a band that we're still friends with today crime and stereo but then we luckily got to be we got a spot opening for gaslight anthem on a weekend tour and we just got along with those guys. And then they asked us to support them on their first full-length release tour and US and Europe. So we we hit the ground running with our own tour and then really quickly got into support slots. And that was like our first big support tour. We supported them in the US for a month and then we supported them in Europe for six weeks. Um, and it was insane. I mean, it was it was, a really lucky opportunity for us to get that and kind of started the whole thing so the band i'm guessing kind of pretty much became full-time at that point then like when when you guys started touring full-time obviously we were full-time band for six years so 08 to to 20 the beginning of 2013 now i don't know if you would have kept track of numbers like this but do you know offhand like what year like what number like the most shows you played in one year ever was or anything like that I don't know. I don't know show numbers, but I know months on the road. And when we first started, we were doing nine months on the road, not in a row, but yeah. total throughout the year. Yeah. We were on the road for nine months out of the year. Now that was the first couple years. We started like waning that back, and by the end, 
we were like five months out of the year yeah. on the road. So from the beginning to the end, we kind of gradually scaled it down. Yeah. But when we first started, yeah. we were on the road a lot. Like, I don't know what it's like with COVID now, obviously, and like how things are going to change, but it seems like a lot of like the smarter bands were doing stuff like that. Like I would think like a terror band would like they toured less, but you would just play like when you toured like the smart, you know what I mean? Like they're the, the right places yeah. to play or whatever type thing. So, well, I don't know if you noticed this too, but I, I just think that, yeah, for sure. I mean, cause when I was a kid, you know, pre hardcore going to like water street music hall shows, like any band that you liked would have come to either Rochester, Syracuse or Buffalo before yeah. the pandemic that just was uh, not happening, you know? And I think that was a big part of it. Yeah. Bands were just like, well, I want to play Toronto and yeah. I want to play New York city. Do I really have to go anywhere in between? Yeah. No, I'm just going to yeah. go right in between the two, you know? Yeah. I started noticing that around like actually probably right around the time you guys started kind of blow up. Cause I was yeah. like, I would keep my toes like in the water of like going to shows and stuff, but I, I wasn't going to as many, but like when I wanted to see like, like Chromags or like any of these like, like reunion bands or just like even beastie boys, like you'd have to go somewhere else. It, like even yeah. those kind of bands weren't coming around here, but then like it wasn't I was the case when we were younger. I mean, when right? we were younger, yeah. every tour would have had one of those three dates on it. If yeah. not that tour, then the next. And yeah. just, it just, I, I think it's, I think, I hope it comes back a little bit post COVID. I think right. bands are just going to have to start playing more cities to get yeah. themselves like back on the feed and recoup from yeah. COVID losses. Um, but I, 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 it sucks that I have to go to Toronto to see bands I like, but yeah. you know, it's not that far. Yeah, I can't really travel anywhere, obviously. And due to uh, previous encounters, I can't go to Toronto anymore or anywhere in Canada for that matter. <laughs> really? So, uh, it's no. just a, a mistake I made. I don't know if I've told you the story. I'll tell you after the interview. It's it's nothing nothing like major. But it was, it's on the record. It's definitely on the record. I can't go there. So. <laughs> uh, moving along. Um, <laughs> What were like some of the most fun bands like that you toured with? Like, again, like I said, I, I would look at the list and I'm like, at some of the tours you're going on, I'm like, holy shit, like these guys are just, yeah. it's like everyone, you know, it's like, we, 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 we like didn't say no to tours. I mean, yeah. some, some we would because, you know, we, we had to go like where the shows were, you know? And so when we started out, we weren't really considered like a, pop punk band but those were the bands we got along with and those were the bands that were touring so that's who we aligned ourselves with and those kids liked us you know so we couldn't just do like hardcore tours our whole career so we started getting into that world and then that got into like warp tour world and then that got into like you know i don't know probably like the weirdest tour we ever did was we we the alternative press tour we were opening for bring me the horizon and uh august burns red like christian metal band and bring yeah. the horizon kind of like a you know metal core band yeah um had a blast doing that i mean I, honestly those those bands as people are amazing you know i have nothing but good things to say about them and it was a great opportunity to do it but those types of bands some of those bands are not so amazing as people. And some of them are downright like misogynist, awful, yeah. like horrible content. So if those bands came to us and were like, we want you with some, and some of them did, some of those yeah. types of bands asked us to open for them and we just flat out said no. Yeah. But um, that those Bring Me the Horizon, August Burns Red, love those, those bands, had a blast doing that tour. Um, but you know, our like core group, like our actual like 
colleagues, our gang, you know, would be like bands like uh, Fireworks and Four Years Strong and, and kind of bands like Set Your Goals, like bands from that world. But also um, Trapped Under Ice really early on, we became really close with them and did a bunch of tours with them. Every Time I Die as well, like just we, we loved touring with them. Um, had so much fun, but like four year strong and fireworks, those, those guys were at my wedding, you know, like those, those are like really close friends and, and just bands that helped us out immensely. I mean, four year strong, we opened for them a bunch of times. And remember one tour we did, we just were hitting a string of bad luck. We, uh, goose broke his knee and had to leave the tour. We were like dealing with van trouble. We were losing money. And out of nowhere, you know, Four Year Strong was just like, hey, we're doing really well. They've always done really well, you know, just forever. And they're like, just, we get two hotel rooms a night. Just come stay in our hotel rooms, you know, every night. We like hanging out with you guys, like every single night where we go, you go, you know, we're like, okay, cool. And so like, they, not only were they, they the two singers, they were filling in for bass with us, playing bass in our set and then letting us stay in their hotel with them. And like, I, I just haven't, can't say enough good things about those types of bands and, and them specifically, but all those bands were, were in like a little group, like us, them, Set Your Goals, Fireworks, Trapped Under Ice, Every Time I Die. Um, those were kind of like our like crew, you know, that was like the main crew that we rolled with, but had a blast doing those tours. But we, we opened some crazy tours, like, um, open for Bad Religion, you know, that was a blast. That was a super fun tour. But we did like cool big festivals too. Played Reading and Leeds Festival twice. Played Soundwave in Australia. That was crazy. Yeah. That was an amazing tour. But yeah, we, we just went everywhere, you know? What, what, like, I don't, well, I guess I've interviewed a few people like, like, like Scott and Daryl from Buffalo that have played big festivals like that, but I didn't ask them, like, what, what is it like, like going up there and playing in front of like, I mean, there had to have been like 50, 100,000 people at that download. And even the Reading Leeds one usually has like... Reading and Leeds was the big one for yeah. sure. And yeah. like, I mean, like The Cure and Foo Fighters headlined the second year we did Reading and Leeds. But like, you know, it's always like obviously some sort of like side stage. But even the side stage, I think, you know, there's at least 3,000 to 5,000 yeah. people watching you, you know. You know, we got kind of good at doing those types of shows. Like we did so many of them. I mean, certain summers, that's all you would be doing, especially if you're in Europe, because the festival culture in Europe, that's just all that's happened. There's, of course, Reading and Leeds, but there's a million other little like smaller festivals in Germany and Belgium and all over Europe and the UK. And everyone goes to them. Everyone goes. So we got really good at playing those types of shows. And honestly, we didn't really think of it as terribly different from doing, you know, a club show. I, I think we liked playing clubs more just because it's weird playing outside in the sun. You know, it just isn't the optimal way to, 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 to play. But we played so much. I mean, we, we, we were in such a groove as a band. We were so tight and we played all the time that it really wasn't that intimidating for us to do that. I mean, it just was like a bigger stage and a bigger sound and, and more people. But like, I don't know, the difference between 200 people and 2,000 people 
isn't that much to me. It's still a group of people, you know, it's just, it, it didn't feel terribly different to do. And, and like I said, we got kind of good at it near the end. We had done Warp Tour a couple times too, which is essentially the, that every day. And I think the, the main differences is like, I don't know, it's the banter is different. You, like the in-between song banter is more general. It's more, you're more like an MC at a club than like a singer in a band. Like there's more like dumb shit like that, you know? So that's the, maybe the technical difference, but, but other than that, it's not terribly different than playing a club. The Warp Tour thing, I guess I'm a little curious about too. Like, was that like, were you, was it like a van or a bus at that point? Or were you still just touring in your van? We did a bus. We, yeah. we split a bus. Um, we, we had always heard, so by the time we did Warp Tour, you know, we were seasoned and we had many colleagues and everyone was always told us about how grueling Warp Tour was and how it was like, known as like a band ender like if your band can survive warp tour then it can survive anything and a lot of bands don't and the one thing we heard was any band that tries to do warp tour in a van is surely going to be broken up by the end of the tour <laughs> because it's routed for buses it, so meaning that the distance between cities and the timing of the schedule is such where you have to drive all night to get there and so like if you do Warp Tour in a van, you, you get to the festival grounds, you have to get there at a certain time, the festival grounds close. It's kind of like when you leave us, when the school leaves and all the buses have to go at a certain time, that's how Warp Tour operates. So if you're in a van doing Warp Tour, you can't just play and leave. You're parked, you can't leave until all the buses leave. So you don't leave until 11 o'clock at night you drive all night. You've got to get to the next site by like 8 a.m. Set up, play. Your merch stand is set up the entire length of the festival. You're running merch. You're restocking. You're sitting at merch. You're doing signings. You're doing press. And you're playing. It was just, to us, we were like, we're not doing that in a van. We'll, we'll figure out how to make it work in a bus. So we split a bus the first year. Uh, we split a bus with Make Do and Mend and, and made it work then. And then the second year, I think we did our own bus. I can't remember. But we were the second year at least getting paid a little bit better where the bus wasn't totally not worth it. But that was the only time we ever did a bus. And oh man, was it nice. It was awesome. I mean, literally, you just get in your bunk and fall asleep and then you wake up and you're at the next city. <laughs> you know, right. it's like amazing. You guys never did that in Europe or anything? The bus thing? Seems like no, you we, we toured... At, we, <laughs> We toured in the same red sprinter because when we went to Europe, we always had the same driver, this amazing guy, Stan, who um, was just our longtime friend. And we toured in like a red sprinter, essentially like a FedEx van, essentially. And we always, every time we went to Europe, we toured in that same, same thing. I guess I've never really thought about that until you mentioned it. Cause I haven't interviewed too many people who've been to Europe. Like, are there people who like, that's their like paid profession within punk and hardcore. They just drive vans around Europe. Oh yeah. And there's a market for it, man. Like yeah. there's not only that, but there's like tour supply companies, uh, equipment rental companies yeah, and drivers. Right. All because so many bands and, and so many festivals, that's yeah. the thing. Like we would play 12 festivals all in the UK and Europe over the course of the summer. 
And there's like our driver that was just his job to do that. Here's, here's a good example. The one time we tried to do like a different van, it, 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 it broke down and we had to like send it back and we had to rent all new gear and we were like screwed. We were in the middle of, uh, I think it was in Belgium and we had no idea what we were going to do. We were in this like small town in Belgium and we got on the phone with our booking agent and they were like, Hey, you're in luck. There's a like all encompassing touring supply company, one town over in Belgium from where you're at. You can get a new van, you can get all new amps and guitars and drums and everything. You can get everything you need right there. And there's all sorts of little places like that because it's just a, a popular thing. You know, it's a, it's a lucrative business over there. And another part of it too is like the geography is not as great. So like, you know, I could, I could be starting a tour in England and be then driving to the, all of Europe and playing all around there and driving back to England. So they just have a different, different world in terms of touring there. Yeah, it seems like that's crazy having the tour supply thing. That's got my head spinning just thinking about that whole market. You it's know? insane. That's, that's crazy. And then I guess another thing, which I don't want to get too into the weeds with European touring, but there's just a lot of things I've always wondered about. And now that I have you here, I can ask you, like, what about, like, merchandise and records? Like, do you bring that over? Do you get it, like, shipped there? Or, like, you get merch made in Europe or, like? Both. Yeah. All, all of it, honestly. All of it? Like, like, we'll get some, we would get some made there, but yeah. we would try and we always had overstock here. So yeah. we would try and bring over as much as we could, but yeah. that's always tricky because you have to try and not bring so much where it seems like um, a, a, a taxable thing that has that's to be insane. claimed, yeah. but still bring enough where yeah. you can make money off of it. So we usually yeah. would do like giant army bags of, of t-shirts and sweatshirts. And that would be a little bit, yeah. But then we would get stuff printed there and yeah. pick up stuff that was printed there. Yeah, because I've always wondered about how that would work out, especially when a band like with it's you a guys. It's a giant pain in the ass. It, yeah. Honestly, it's a huge pain in the ass. Seems like it. But then that also seems like it'd be a thing where they would have a market for that over there too, like with like people oh, yeah. merch for American bands or whatever. Not only that, but storage too. So we would get yeah. stuff printed there on one tour and leave and store it there for when we would come back and stuff like that. It was all crazy stuff. Like, yeah. like just the logistics we're a huge, huge headache. So again, you probably, I don't, you probably played so many shows, but like, what can you think of, of like favorite places to play with the band and like best reactions you got in like certain places? Yeah. I mean, so Europe and England for sure. And the, the thing about them, specifically Germany and England, we always had really good reactions. Other areas of Europe, like, um, you know, Sweden, Switzerland, Austria, Belgium, uh, you know, Hungary, we even went to once. Uh, less so great reactions, but Germany and England was always really solid for us. And the thing about them as like concert goers, culturally, there's no fickleness, right? Like, like you and I were just talking about like, you know, sometimes we don't go to a show, right? <laughs> like a band we love could be coming to town and there's a chance we might not go just because we always tell ourselves, eh, we're busy or it's a weeknight. We'll see them next time they come through. That's just, that is not part of the culture, specifically in Germany, not maybe a little bit less in the UK, but in Germany, if you're a fan, if you're a fan of said band, you go every single time, 
every single time that band comes, you go. And so we just always had really good shows. And if it ever grew, it never dwindled. It always grew. It never, never plateaued or dwindled. So Germany, we, we always had good time. And in the, in, in the States, Toronto was like our sure shot cities, like no questions asked, always knew it was going to be a good show. New York City, Toronto, obviously Syracuse or Rochester, Philly, San Francisco, uh, Seattle, major cities like that. We always knew we're going to be a good time. Our weird cities, though, that really worked for us, Boise, Idaho, had a really good like little following there. Not that it was a lot of people, but we would go there and play to like 80 people maybe, right? But because, and this all ties back to Rochester. All of this ties back to the ethos of Rochester Hardcore and how we did things and how I learned to be in a band. The way I learned to be in the band was very much, you do the same show no matter what, right? There's one person there, there's a thousand people there. They're getting the same level of show in terms of quality and energy and intensity. And I think a lot of those cities in the middle of America, they're used to being kind of like connective tissue cities, right? Boise is very much the connective tissue between like Salt Lake and Seattle, right? You are just those two cities are too far apart from another. You got to play somewhere. And you, so Boise is going to get hit on every single tour just because bands have to play there. And so I think they're used to seeing bands come through and phone it in, right? It's just the connective tissue. We have to play here. So whatever. We normally have the day off. We're going to do a not so great show. PBC just didn't do that. We always played the best show we could. And Cities like that really respond to that. They're not used to it to an extent. And they, I think, have a different type of appreciation for it. And so because of that, like we could go to Boise anytime and always play a really great show. Um, so had a, had a lot of fun in, in, in Boise. But like I said, those like Northeastern cities always was gonna be a good time for us. You know, other cities was worse, hit or miss. Sometimes great, sometimes not so much. You know, I don't have a ton more to ask about the band, but I do want to jump back a little bit because we were talking about Brian McTernan in the beginning of the interview, and I feel kind of remiss not asking about like recording and stuff with the band. Did you guys do a, like a lot of the bulk of the recording with him, or was there a bunch of other studios towards the end, like when you were working with Bridge Nine? We tried to do a different studio every time. Mm -hmm. um so we only did one record with brian we mm -hmm. did our third full-length clash battle guilt pride with with him and for everything we've said i mean that was just a dream come true i mean that his ear and his studio and everyone will talk about the snare the snare sound of his records right that's what everyone talks about but it's more than that that sound that came out of that studio the the jade tree albums the the bridge nine albums not just because of the bands but but specifically the way the records sounded was so influential to me and chris and and nate and everyone in pbc and when we finally got to go to that studio and record with him it, it really was like a, a a dream come true i mean it was one of the best 
recording experiences of my life just just because a he's so great as a person and as an engineer and as a producer and just it was just like it kind of finally of all the cool stuff that we did recording at that studio is finally when it felt like we were we arrived at the party you know like we finally were like standing amongst giants at least in my eyes because it was like you know all those the majority rule record trial by fire the explosion um all the strike anywhere records the the bain record that was done there those the way those records sounded to me was just so ideal is such like the that's what records were supposed to sound like and so when we finally got to record there it just was like i finally felt like something was coming full circle um i mean the only reason we didn't go back for the record after was just because like i said we we tried to we wanted to try different things every time and and we did the last record with will yip and and that was great but the record we did with brian was like special for that reason to me personally you know i don't know if you can hear that if you listen to all the records if you can if someone outside the band responds to that but to me my own memory that was just a very special record and i think too that record marked a different phase in our career there's a lot of people who like polar bear club who that's their favorite record. That's when they started listening to us. Um, and I think that just was like a milestone record for us after the first full length. I guess I have a couple other studio related questions. Um, were, were there any other standout studios? I know you mentioned recording with Will Yip. And then did you kind of like take more and more time with each release or was it always kind of like the same process, like recording wise? We, always, we, we generally had the same process. I mean, the first full length we did with John McClario at Nada Studios, which was great. No real pre-production though, just getting right to it and starting to record. The second record we did with Matt Bayless in Seattle. And that was really great because we liked Matt's records and it was just cool to be like living in Seattle and recording a record, you know, like that was just so freaking cool to be, I, I love recording. I mean, to this day, like touring is fine. Playing shows is great being in a studio is the thing that i respond to the most like being in a studio is what i was kind of like meant to do that's where i'm most comfortable it's i go into a recording studio and 12 hours goes by in a blink to me i forget to go to the bathroom i forget to eat like i'm just in the zone i just love recording and so every studio held that for me we never really had a bad studio experience but seattle at bayless's studio was great we did a little bit of pre-production where we like tinkered with the songs a little bit, but not a lot. But then the third record we did with Brian, we did a lot of pre-production. I think we did 10 days of just talking about the songs, just playing them, having Brian tweak things. Some of the songs weren't all the way written by that time. So Brian and us, we like finished them there and then we recorded it. And then the next and last record we did with Will, and had an incredible experience. His studio outside of Philly, we did a lot of pre-production there, but also just that studio is legendary. That, um, studio four, that was, that was the old headquarters of Rough House Records. So like old nineties hip hop records that were recorded there. And it was an old like Neve console, which you always hear about. Um, and Will just as a person is so incredible. We never had a bad recording experience, honestly. It was always, every time we recorded, I just was so like, I considered myself lucky to just be there. You know, I just loved being in the studio. Um, but every time was great, absolutely great.
Now, I don't know how much of a hip hop fan you are, and I'm trying to Google it too because the only one I can think of that's on Rough House. Uh, I want to say the first couple Cypress Hill albums were on Rough House. I don't know if they would have recorded them there because they're from Cali, but they they might have recorded those there. Yeah. But also like post Rough House, um, like Boys to Men recorded there too, like off the backs of yeah. the Rough House stuff. But yeah, but also a lot of like that studio did a lot of uh, '90s rock too, like. Uh, Urge Overkill recorded a record there. Anthrax recorded a record there. Um, just a legendary, cool-ass studio that Will, Will started kind of interning there and then gradually just kind of cemented himself there and then bought into the studio and became one of the owners. And now, I think primarily, it's like considered his place. He does all the work there now. And then the guy, Phil Niccolo, who owned it originally, um, who was like one of the owners of Rough House uh, is kind of like retired now, but just being there because it's 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 recording now. Modern recording is so small now, right? Like you could record an album in your bedroom, right? But it's rare to be in like an old big studio from the '90s like that, and that still is like that, and it just feels cool being in there. You know, there's cool equipment and cool rooms, and it's all isolated, and it's it's cool. Yeah, it sounds cool. Um, obviously, we could have like a whole episode, I think, on, on Polar Bear Club, but I, I, you know, have other stuff to ask you about too. But the, I guess the last question I would have, unless you have other stuff you, that I didn't ask you about with the band, is it like a permanent hiatus or like what's the... I, I think so. I, I yeah. mean, I, I don't think anything's ever off the table, but um, I've been asked about it a bunch and, and I, I always kind of say the same thing is like, Polar Bear Club never made enough money to be like a cash grab band. So like there's no, and we all have jobs, right? So there's no, there's no like financial cash grab incentives, incentive for us to do anything, which is great. So if there is inspiration from us to do, we would, I think we would only do, we would only come back if there was material. I don't think we would come back just to play shows. I, I think we would come back with songs, you know? When there's inspiration to do that, we'll, we'll be back. I just don't know if that will happen again. Our, logistically, it'd be challenging just because we're all all over and stuff like that. And we're all doing other types of things. But um, nothing is off the table, as you know. But I don't know. Maybe maybe it will never happen. I'm, I'm not certain. It's It's crazy because... You know, and this definitely hasn't taken a shot at you guys by any means, but anytime you see a band talk about like going on a hiatus, you always assume like exactly what you just said, like with the whole exactly. cash grab thing, you're like, oh, they're just going to do like a two year off thing or whatever. And we can, I'm sure we can both think of a couple of bands right now that oh, have done yeah. that, you know, and then they just come back and play like bigger shows than they ever did before. And it's like, the thing that's so annoying about that too, is like, I feel the same way where I always make fun of bands that say that. And then like a week later or whatever, you know, they're back, but it is always kind of good when they come back. It's never totally bad, right? They never embarrass themselves, I don't think. At least none that I have seen. It's always pretty okay. Um, but yeah, I just don't think PBC... I don't know. Me personally, like, we did it so intensely for so long. There's just nothing left to do, you know? Like, it's, it's just we did what we set out to do. And, and I think... I, I don't feel right about doing it for other people you know like i don't feel like because i think a lot of bands do it for their fans you know they're like oh we're gonna do it for the fans and like that's all well and good but selfishly i only ever did polar bear club for me yeah i mean i at the end of the day i did it because 
it inspired me. And what people responded to, what, maybe this, they don't know it, but I think generally what people respond to when they like a band is the members of the band being inspired by doing it for themselves. And I just would feel wrong if that feeling wasn't there and I was doing it without that feeling. So I, I don't think it would be good and I, and I would feel wrong about it. So until that feeling comes back, at least for me, um, we'll be on a hiatus, I guess. But, but who knows? It really could come back. I mean, I still like that music and I still um, think, I'm not, in, you know, it's not like the type of thing like I'm embarrassed by Polar Bear Club. Like I still listen to the music and think like, this was good, you know? Um, I just think like there's nothing new to do with it yet. Well, when I was prepping this episode on Spotify, uh, it looks like other people are still listening to Polar Bear Club too. I was, I was kind of, you know, a little surprised. I was like, damn, that's a, lot, a good amount of listeners compared to like other active bands. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's, for you sure. Know, you guys definitely left your mark. You know, I guess with that in mind, like, what would you say? Like, like, how do you look at it overall? I know you say you did everything you accomplished, but like, like, how do you look at Polar Bear Club? Like overall, like, let me take a step back and think about like the whole like time of the band. Um, you know, I, I. I actually think we probably did it for too long. I think we probably should have stopped sooner. And I, I mean, there's no, that's how those things go. You don't know until you, you're, you're past the point, right? But I think if like I could do everything over again, I, I, and I don't think anyone in the band would disagree with me on this. I think we probably should have stopped sooner. Um, just because like by the end, we were kind of going through the motions. Um, but, you know, there's always little regrets. Maybe we should have not taken this tour. Maybe we should have done this a little bit differently. But at the end of the day, you can only do it like you know how to do it at the time you're doing it. And so I, I look back on it as just like, I mean, really, it's such a huge part of who I am and what I, ident I identify with. And I'm really proud of that. Like I, that's not a lot. That's something that not a lot, a lot of people get. Like, yeah, in the grand scheme of my life and my 36 years on this earth, it was only six of those years, right? So in the grand scheme, it didn't take up a lot of time, but it was the most like formative thing I've done. And I still associate my, if it weirdly, if I were to be at a party and someone were to ask me, what do you do? I would still kind of be like, oh, I, I'm in this band and I'd be like, wait a second. No, I'm not. I still think of that as who I am, as what I identify with. Um, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed or embarrassed by it. So I look back on what we did very fondly because despite some of the tours we took and some of the bands we played with, we were always in my eyes, credible. And I don't mean that in terms of like, that was something we sought, but we always approached what we did from an artistic lens. We always, the, the North Star of that band was always what is true to us and what is authentic for us to be doing right now. And that was it. We always went into the studio with that in mind. We never thought about what are people gonna think of this what's going to be successful, what's not going to be successful. We always were motivated by what inspired us. And that's not, not every band can say that for the entirety of their career. 
and we we truly could. So I, I look back on it with nothing but pride. What's weird is you mentioning like what's authentic to us as a band. Like every time you go in the studio, studio, like all those bands you and I talked about in the beginning, like Majority Rule, Bane. You know what I mean? Like I can think of that of all those bands too. So it's it's it just shows like the influence of all these bands that you grew up with, like like coming right out. You know what I mean? It's cool to to see that. You know. And the thing you don't realize until you are a little bit older is how hard it is to do that because those bands make it seem easy. Like those, like you listen to majority of a record and it just falls out. I mean, it's just like, it's like a, a spool of yarn unfolding in front of you. It just is so natural and fully formed. And just like you listen to it and you're like, yeah, there's no way this could be anything else other than what it is. And it sounds so effortless. But what you realize when you start trying to do that is it's, it's kind of hard. I don't mean it's hard to do, but you kind of have to fight for it, right? You have to explain yourself a lot because imagine going into a studio for the first time and the producers never really heard you before. And then your majority rule. And th that, that's the sounds you're making. Can you imagine being a recording engineer and being like, what the fuck is this? You know, like without the context, you'd be like, what is this sound that you're making? Yeah. You know, it's really hard to, it's more of a fight than you realize, despite how effortless those bands make it seem. But yes, all because of those bands. And not only just the, the fact that they did it, they all did it so differently. But despite the differences in the styles, it still was authentic and true to them. And so really that was the unifier. That was the unifier between all, everything that was happening in Rochester, what's authentic. Doesn't matter what the dressing is, doesn't matter what it looks like or sounds like, is it real? And that was what struck the chord back then and still to this day. But yeah, for sure, that was what I carried with me and all of us did. Now I know you have a, a project now and it looks like you had like been helping out with some backing uh, band for another one. Like, but did you, was there, have you always been active playing music like since Polar Bear Club or, or did you take some time off in between? I took some time. Uh, yeah. I, uh, after Polar Bear Club ended, I, we, I, I couldn't and didn't write music or think about making it for at least two years. I, I, I mean, I, because in Polar Bear Club, I, I wrote all the lyrics, but I wrote a lot of the music too. And I'm the type of person who's like always playing guitar, always writing a song, always just diddling around on the guitar. After Polar Bear Club ended, I put my guitar in a closet and I didn't touch it for two years. I just like was spent. I just, was, I just needed to figure out like what it was I even wanted to say musically anymore. I didn't know. I just had to put it to bed. So there was a two year period where I was just working in an office. I wasn't making music. I wasn't writing music. I wasn't doing anything aside from working and living. And then um, all of a sudden it just started to come back a little bit. And, and I picked the guitar back up and I started like writing material again. And I started doing this band with Nate from Polar Bear Club. It's called Wax Bottles. And we have one EP on Spotify. Um, I did it in when I lived in New Jersey with Nate and uh, the drummer Gaslight Anthem plays drums in it. Um, and it's kind of like a heavy, like Pixies, like 90s style band, but it's cool. I really like that record. It was super fun to make. And then, yeah, now I do the Shy, shy Tooth primarily, and I'm playing backup guitar in this band called Bad Bloom. It's kind of like shoegazy pop punk band. But I'm always writing music, always like playing guitar 
like the, take the shy tooth record for example that just came out there's 11 songs on it that was pared down from like 20 songs you know i, I am just that's when i'm most happy is when i'm just kind of figuring out a song and they're not all good they're, most of them are pretty bad actually but the good ones what, what ends up on the records i have a couple shy tooth questions but um one thing i've been thinking about throughout this interview is like we were talking about like hardcore and stuff like when you were a teenager and whatnot and obviously your tastes have expanded and the music you've played has definitely changed and this is jumping back obviously but like at what point did you or was it always like an evolving thing where you weren't just listening to hardcore you know what i mean it was always evolving i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of flaky like that i think i i i think it, 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 my tastes are always like i have really like obsessive tastes and i don't multitask well so like i'll be really into like one thing and that's it for that period of time and then i'll kind of go on to the next type of thing i guess you could call that evolution i guess but 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 yeah so it it, it evolved from hardcore and started there and like I, I maybe don't listen to a lot of hard modern hardcore right now, but that style and that authentic, authenticity and the rawness and the work ethic, I, I learned how to be in a band through hardcore. And like, that's always how I did it. That's the only way I know how to do it. So in a way, it's, it's just the seeds of everything I do, even though stylistically is not really the music I create anymore. But, but it's always there. I get what you're saying. Um, now with shy tooth while doing a little bit of research for the episode, I hadn't really know much about it. I guess I had just assumed it was your project, but when, while looking it up, it, it looks like that, that was started by, by Brian Van Etten initially. Yeah. Or is he still Same a part of the band too then? Or? Yeah. Brian, Brian's in it. We, I, we practice once a week. Uh, it, and it's, it's weirdly similarly, it started like polar bear club. It was Brian's thing to start. And, I had just moved back to Rochester and Brian had recorded these demos of him playing all the instruments, the drums, the guitar, bass, and he didn't have any vocals on it. And he was like, Hey, same thing. I, I'm just trying to do this thing. Like you want to maybe lay down some vocals. It's not going to be this very serious thing. And so I wrote some vocals to it and the vocals I had written, I had kind of envisioned these like guitar leads in a certain way. So I just also, I, put some guitar on the demos as well. And he liked it and he was like, oh dude, you should also play guitar and sing in this. And so we just kind of started from there. We started playing together shortly after that. And we, we practiced together for like a year and a half before we even announced that we were a band. We were just having fun, hanging out and playing once a week and then Finally, we're like, ah, oh, we should probably release some music and, and play a show or something. Um, but yeah, it started as Brian's thing primarily, and he's still super active in it. And is it still, and I forget the other guy's name, but, but Trevor's in the band too? Trevor Amesmith plays drums, yeah. and John Garwood plays guitar, right. and Nate from Polar Bear Club plays third guitar and, and sometimes keyboards. And, and I guess, what, like, how would you describe the music for this band again? I, so to, it's to me I, kind of like I would equate it to of the types of music I listen to. It's more like the super chunk power pop, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello um, type stuff. Like, like 
the, the real like type of music that I really consider as like my main taste would be like alternative music, you know, from whatever generation, any generation, every generation as far back as like the 60s has some sect of alternative music, right? Usually alternative rock. And that's the type of music I generally align to. So that's kind of the inspiration. I would consider it more like alternative pop, but like, like Nick Lowe, we, when we were, when we were doing this last record, we were trying, we were, as we were talking about what we wanted it to sound like, we, we were saying like, well, like a loud, heavier Nick Lowe, that's what we wanted it to sound like. And that's, I think kind of what, what it came out as a little different, but yeah. Were you guys already like playing shows and stuff like before COVID hit and everything or? We have only played like, well, count on one hand, how many shows we've played. Mm-hmm. We played our first show a year before COVID hit. And then the literal, we did a weekend in between then where we played Rochester, Buffalo, and Toronto. And then the literal day that the quarantine started, we had a show booked in Rochester. We woke up that day thinking that that show's happening. Then by lunchtime, it was canceled. And then the next day, lockdown. Right. So we have not played since then. And we have another show. We have our first show post lockdown in Syracuse on October 9th at the Lost Horizon. Um, so looking forward to that. But yeah, we, we haven't played many shows. But honestly, I don't mind. I, I like playing shows. But my, the main thing I get my, my juices flowing and get my jollies from being in a band is, is writing and recording. And so that's primarily what we do. We kind of joke that that might be all we do. <laughs> we are not really, I mean, you know, Brian runs two businesses, has a kid. Um, everyone else has full-time jobs and kids. We're not really going to play a lot of shows per se, but I, I think we'll, we'll all, always be making and releasing music. You guys practice once a week, like the four piece, like the, are there five of you, I guess? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we, but also it's kind of a social thing too, because yeah. you know, like I said, you, once you have kids and full-time job and whatever, it's just like, you know, your time gets eaten up. I mean, really we, 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 we take our practices seriously and we write a lot of music and we, we, we take pride in being a good band, but it's also a social thing. We like getting together and hanging out and shooting the shit, you know, and it's, and it's, it's a structured hangout. It's an excuse to get together. So I have a few other, a few other non, like non-band topics. I mean, we're, we're a little over the two hour mark, so I'll try to be, uh, try to be brief with some of these things, I guess. No but um, I know one thing you've been kind of doing that's kind of interesting is like, you've been doing some kind of like film, like discussion type group thing. Yeah. Like, how did that all start? Was that something that started during COVID or was that like before you, before even you had done that? Started during COVID. Um, but, uh, you know, film and television has always been a huge part of my life it's been my biggest passion aside from making music just again something that I just really responded to at a young age Um, so it's always been a huge part of my life I always wanted to do something structured around it and then the pandemic just seemed like a good opportunity to do it so I put it out to Twitter or Instagram or something the general shape of the idea and I kind of said, like, I don't really know how to do this, but I want to. Anyone has any ideas, let me know. And a couple people started reaching out and saying, like, oh, you can do it like this, you like that. And then my friend Scott suggested uh, Discord. 
uh, as the platform to do it on. And I didn't at the time know anything about it and started looking into it and was like, oh yeah, this is pretty perfect. So the general structure of it is um, we, once a week we announce, someone in the group picks a film and the next week we all meet on Sunday to discuss it. And it's, there's a chat room that runs concurrently and all throughout the week. And then we have this video conference call on Sundays at 3 p.m. And the chat room, there's about 70 people in the chat room. Now, active, there's only about 15 or so that are active of that 70. Of those 15, the meetings will actually be anywhere from like 6 to 10. Um, but it's all over. There's uh, my friend Graham from Scotland is in there. Uh, there's this guy from England in there. There's people from California, other people throughout the U.S. Um, and it's just been a, a really good structured reason to get together with people and talk about films. And also, the really the best part about it is there's all sorts of films that, as many films as I have seen, I always get to the point where I feel like I've seen it all and there's nothing left to watch. And then all of a sudden someone brings a suggestion either that I haven't heard of or that I just wrote off completely. And 99.999% of the time, I end up loving that film. And so it's been a great excuse to discover films that either I didn't know about or that I just assumed sucked and just decided I wasn't going to take a chance on. And I'm always wrong in that. So it's been great. We've been taking a little break from it this month, but we're back at it. Uh, at the end of September, we'll be back in, in the swing of it. That's, that all sounds really cool. I, uh, you know, having kids now, it's obviously with music too, especially, but like film and like stuff like that is something I definitely want to introduce my son in, into when he gets older. But like, obviously a lot of movies that I like is stuff he probably can't watch until he's like an adult, you know, type thing. So You know what? I, I am of a mixed mindset of that because I, I don't know specifically what films you're talking about. <laughs> There's definitely a line, I'm sure. But I also like the idea of like, you know, obviously not like two and three year olds, but I don't know, once you get to like six or seven, yeah. I kind of think anything's fair game with context, you know, there's, well, um, anyway, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I want well, just before you jump into that, the thing I'm thinking of is we watch RoboCop. I'm sure you've seen it at some point, the original RoboCop, yeah. not the Joel Kinnaman or whatever his name yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We watched my, my girlfriend Sarah and I watched it together like 10 years ago. And before we watched it, I was like, oh, this is one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. I saw it when I was like the same age you're talking about, like seven or eight. At one point, spoiler alert, if you've never seen the movie too, oh, guys, but at one point there's a scene where like, there's just a gun and dude just gets like shot, like repeatedly, like in the stomach and chest. And I'm like, oh yeah, my God. But I was watching that when I was like seven years old. I'm like, I don't know if I'd want my son watching something like that when he's that age, yeah. you know, and like yeah. Scarface, you know, like there's certain movies that I'm like a little too violent. And then like even certain things, like I was watching some random TikTok and this is kind of off topic of what we're talking about, but it's the same. I was watching some random TikTok video today and some girl starts like swearing in it. I'm like, I don't want him to hear like fuck and stuff like that yet. He's only three, you know? You know, I think it depends. A lot of it depends on the kid too. Right? Yeah. And like, you know, your kids. Yeah. And I think there's, there's, there's certain types of personalities. And I don't, I don't think this is something you learn. I think this is, there's just, some people are just born this way and some are not. Yeah. They're like, you can look at that scene in Robocop or you or the thing is another good example. Right. Yeah. Like I can watch the thing and I just, I, at the same time, I know it's fake and I fucking love it, you know? Yeah. And I, it doesn't scare me like it's real. 
Yeah. It scares me like an expression that I know right. is fake, but still speaks to me in some way. And I think some people have that, but some people like are really afraid of those types of things and, yeah. and it affects them deeply in a different way. And I think that just depends on the person. I think some kids would go one way and some kids would go another. I was the type of kid who just like, I, I was watching scary shit like, like at a really young age, yeah. same thing. And it just, I never thought it was real, but I just still really loved it. I thought it yeah. was cool, you know? Yeah. Maybe not every kid would be like that, but some. Yeah, I was telling my girlfriend this morning that I was watching like Nightmare on Elm Street and stuff like that, like before school and like first grade. So, I mean, we both watched like crazy, scary stuff as kids and didn't turn out to be like... That shit is still <laughs> scarier to me than the modern horror yeah. shit. Like, I mean, The Thing and Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. and Chucky, like all that stuff is still, yeah. that still scares me more than a modern horror movie. Modern horror movies are kind of silly to me. I, there's some good ones and they're great, yeah. but they don't like scare me to my core. Like those older ones. And I think it's probably just because I was a kid when I saw those, but still, I still hold those as like the gold standard of, of horror or whatever, yeah. you know? The only movie that's ever really like kind of scared me was uh, the first time I watched The Exorcist, you know, like that. I, I think that is the scariest movie yeah. that ever was. I, I think, yeah. I think if you're going to sit down and maybe, you know, everyone has their favorite scary horror movie, whatever it is. I think if you sit down and, you know, nuts to butts just like back to back you're putting horror movies against one another you're pitting them against each other there's nothing scarier than the exorcist that movie is so yeah. fucking scary and it's so it's just so like real it's so just yeah. like that's a kid that's a child and yeah. the things it says and the way it looks like yeah that's a fucked up movie. It's, yeah. That is a fucked up movie. <laughs> yeah, and then the only other random movie before I ask you a couple more questions about your film thing that that kind of is it's totally random too. When I saw it at movies ten, uh, Stir of Echoes with Kevin Bacon. Oh, I've uh, never seen that. I I that, know what you're talking about. I've seen the, yeah. the ads and stuff for it. I was like clenching the movie theater chair and everything. Oh, and yeah. like, if you if like when I when I went going into it, I'm like this movie's gonna be cheesy, and it, it was cheesy, you know. But it's still kind of like one of those movies where you're just like, holy shit, you know. You know what I think? Modern horror that come horror that comes close to like getting to that same like holy shit is the Strangers, the first Strangers. Mm -hmm. That movie scared me so much, and I saw it while I was on tour. I saw it while I was on Polar Bear Club tour. And I remember I was with a friend who we, we were in Portland and we were staying with a friend in two different houses in the same apartment complex. And some of us went to this house and some of us went to this house and we had the movie house and the not movie house. And I went to the movie house with a couple other guys from the band and our buddy. And we watched two movies that night. We watched the room and then we watched the strangers. And by the time we started the strangers, it was like one in the morning. And so, we didn't, we skipped dinner, right? And so we were like, all right, if we're gonna watch another movie, we have to get some fucking food, we're starving. Let's order some pizzas and then we'll start the movie. Imagine the hungriest you've ever been, right? That was us. So we order like three large cheese pizzas, whatever. They get there, we start the movie. Every single one of us was so scared, we didn't eat anything. Literally, we were scared out of our hunger. <laughs> I've never had that happen to me wow. since, but I still, I think of modern horror movies, that one, that one comes close to touching what the old ones got to as well. Yeah, my girlfriend's into horror. I don't, I, I don't get into it just for the reason a lot of it's just so cheesy, you know what I mean? Like, I watch oh, some of it, but it's just cheesy. But, but like, what, 
like is there like a theme for like when you guys pick films for your for your discussion or is it just like whatever anybody picks type thing it started out with just whatever anybody picks and then we did that for a couple weeks and then we started doing themes so essentially we do themes in chunks of four so the selection is all random whoever is picking is picked at random so how it works is if we do a theme of four movies and then if you get selected next, you get to pick the theme and then you pick the first film in the theme. So someone picks the theme and then, and then uh, picks the first film in that theme. And the themes can be anything you want. Um, the, the first theme was based on a true story. So any like documentary or movie that's based on a true story. And we got into discussions about like, okay, well, what is truth as it pertains to like cinema and fiction? You know, like, what does that mean? Our last theme, we did 1960, or maybe this wasn't our last one, but one of our recent ones, we did 1968. And you could only pick movies that came out that year or were about events from that year. And there were some really big movies that came out that year. 2001 came out in 68, Night of the Living Dead, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. We didn't do any of those. We did all random movies that came out in 68 and every single one of them was really, really good. So we, we do themes now and all in like four week spans and they have brought about such interesting choices and, and, and films, but it, it, and it usually like shapes discussions in terms of the theme. And then by the time we get to the end, we've had this weird like series. And sometimes there's all these connections planned and unplanned, but it's really interesting to see the films, totally disparate different films in this similar prism the next theme we're doing is uh movies from your childhood and so the first one is that movie curly sue from the 90s yeah so we're that. starting with that and then who knows where we'll go from there so now is the time where i'll usually bring up like current events and stuff so again we'll try to rapid fire these as best as possible i know some of these are kind of topics that you can't really rapid fire though so um we've talked about covid uh, a little bit here and there. Uh, is there anything else? Like, how has that really affected you? And like, how do you feel like moving forward, like with the whole thing going on? You sure. Know? Well, I mean, I I've been affected by COVID at the base level, right? Of like, it's strange and isolating and psychologically weird and, and anxiety inducing. Um, but I didn't lose my job. I don't have kids in school that I'm homeschooling. I, my, my, my wife also, you know, working from home, we transitioned into the very easily. So I, you know, for me, it, it, it could have been a lot worse. I didn't have any, I never got it. I didn't have any immunocompromised people in my life. I didn't, I, I knew people who got it, but I didn't lose anyone to it. Um, so all things considered, made out okay, personally. Um, you know, socially and politically, um, get the damn vaccine, get the damn vaccine. I mean, it just, it, it, it's such a no brainer to say the fact that it's even like a political point is so disheartening. Um, but um, yeah, I, I just think it's the only path ahead and, and, and you know, like so many things, I think COVID was kind of the icing on the disappointment cake, you know, coming out of like Trump going into COVID, just like, I think we always knew, you know, like 
America wasn't perfect, you know, for sure. We always knew that. But I just don't think we knew how until Trump and then into COVID. And like, so yeah, I, I, I obviously lean left politically in just about every respect you, you can have. But I just find myself, the new thing is sadness, right? It, it's not anger anymore. It's just sadness. I, I, it just makes me sad. And maybe that's getting older, but like, you know, I certainly am angry about political and sociological things around coronavirus and everything else that happened the past, you know, four years, eight years, whatever, however long shit's been going on. Um, but I find myself now just getting more saddened by it. And it just makes me feel dejected and, and hopeless. And that's the thing that I have the hardest time overcoming and realizing even, you know, cause sadness makes you kind of shut down, right. And can make you check out and make you just be like, Oh, whatever. I don't care. But that is a luxury. That's a privilege. I get to check out because I am, you know, a cis white male, somewhat a person of privilege. So like checking out doesn't have any cost for me. Right. That's the challenge as like an ally, as a, as a, person of privilege, I guess. The challenge is balancing your sadness and still being engaged. Um, so yeah, I, that, that's where I find my thoughts going a lot is how do I still engage even though I feel so dejected by the world constantly and depressed by it. Um, that's different from when we were younger and you're just angry and just go, 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 go. But um, I feel like we've been dealing with it for so long in whatever form now, and it seems to only be worse this just crazy world that right wing, I guess, fringe conspiracy, whatever you want to call it. Um, so yeah, that's the big challenge is not being, not letting it win and not be, not letting it, not letting yourself check out around it. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I'll keep my opinion on it short. Cause like I said, I want to jump ahead, but I, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And I think that people should just get vaccinated. I also, I don't think it should be like a, like a forced vaccination, obviously, but I do think people should do it. Right. Um, but I do want to say that there are a lot of people that I think are being really dumb about like not taking this thing seriously, still a year and a half in. And I don't want to get too like, you know, emotional or serious about this because nobody knows this person, but um, my old neighborhood that I grew up in, one of my best friends from childhood's mother passed away from COVID this week. So obviously this shit's it's still happening. Real. Yeah. More it's, than it's we're serious. realizing, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what the story is if she was vaccinated or not, but that's not really important to me because what is important to me is that enough people aren't being vaccinated, that people are still getting sick and dying from this. So, you know, there's a lot, there's just, I've said it in previous episodes. There's, there's a lot more important things that people could be spending their time fighting and arguing over rather than a vaccine. I understand, you know, why they're arguing over it with the whole government and big brother thing, but I, I think that argument's stupid. I think yeah. there's a lot more important things to be fighting about than this. Yeah. And the whole big brother stuff too, it's like, that's always the hard part of any time you try to argue about this type of thing, because you know, what, what, what should a government do? Should it mandate things like that? Well, no, I don't, I don't want it to. But that being said, you're not getting it. You're not getting the vaccine. So what, what do we do? You know, it's such a rock and a hard place argument, you know? And then to your point, it's, it's just gets to the point where now it's an issue of public safety, right? 
And it's the same with seatbelts. It's the same with indoor smoking. You know, like your civil liberties don't extend to your right to hurt someone else. And I think that that's what's happening with, with not getting vaccinated. Now, the thing that's so tough is how you're hurting other people is, is a little hard to see. Because not only, yes, um, are you spreading COVID and people like your friend's mom are dying, but also you're hurting society. You're making it so hospitals are overloaded. So not only, or you're, you're, not, you're contributing to that. So not only are people dying from COVID, but people who need other types of care can't get it. But not only just directly related to COVID, how about the local economy and local businesses, right? They, they are forced to now take the brunt of these mandates and, and deal with this and navigate this because we can't obtain herd immunity and get over this hump here. So it's frustrating in all respects. But the other thing too is like this argument about vaccines this wasn't around when we were kids like this this wasn't a political thing and that's not to say that you know the status quo should just be the status quo like we should never th rethink about things and and not argue about them but it does go to show how powerful a talking point can be and how because you know celebrities trump or whomever the anti-vax movement because that, because that just injected itself, I that didn't even mean to make that pun, because that inserted itself into the conversation, now it's a political argument and it's a valid one, which to me, it's totally invalid. Like it makes no sense. We've been getting vaccinated in some form for years, but now it's a, val it's a political thing. That's the real shame of it all. And it's the same with, it's the same with just about any issue you can name, you know? Um, the, something that becomes political. And really that term is, is kind of poisonous, right? This is not political. This is human. This is a human thing. We're just trying to live again in a human capacity. Politicians are the ones who have to come in and put things in place around it because we as a community won't do it ourselves enough to an extent where it's effective, politicians have to come in and pick up that slack. And that's when it becomes political. But if you take all of that away, this is not a political issue. I mean, it's the same with any issue, same with Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's the same, that's not politics, that's humanity. That's, that's, that's not a political issue. It's just because the media is talking about it and now media is politicized. It, it, it has the opportunity to be come political but how the hell is a mask political how is climate change political that's just totally made up and fabricated you know i don't mean climate changes no that's not what i'm saying the fact that it's political is is totally made up and fabricated and that to me is like the root of all evil this like ability to politicize and i, I just think we're smarter than that you know and it makes me sad that people can't figure that out and compartmentalize that I think a little while back, you inadvertently kind of said something that I've never really heard somebody say before. And I'm not even sure you really intentionally said it. And, and you didn't really say it exactly like this, but this is what I got from it. All the people that are complaining about businesses having all these rules and mandates in place are the reason why these mandates and rules are in place. Same with schools. Same you know with schools. Saying? It's the same thing. Yeah. 
same with their uh, kids, you know, why can't, why do my kids have to wear a mask in school? Yeah. Why can't they get back on the bus? Well, it's because you won't get vaccinated, you know? And then to simplify it even further, and you didn't say this, so I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, but I think we can kind of agree on this. I think the people that aren't doing it at this point are being really selfish. You know what I mean? Like they're making it more about them and about like, honestly, to me, it's kind of like for attention at times too. And it's just like, again, there's, you could get attention much like better ways than that, you know? And I think like anything, it's, it's not all one opinion or one type of person. I think there's levels to it. I think there's yeah. people who don't trust the vaccine. Right. And there's people who just don't want to put something in their body that they don't trust right. or think was rushed to market and like you know maybe there's some validity to that yeah. i think personally we're past that point well well past it but you know i could play devil's advocate and see a little bit of that side but then there's the type of people who just no matter what it is um guns uh smoking seatbelt, whatever it is if there's any sort of government involvement of it any kind their stance against government intervention is so strong that no matter what the end result is, they are against it. And that to me is the most foolish person you could be, right? That like, how do you ignore the context of what's happening in the world to such an extent where your idea that this, and again, this, this is the same with Black Lives Matter. It's the same with police brutality. Uh, and defund the police and all that stuff. It's the same thing. Your idea of of freedom superseding someone else's actual physical well-being is such, such selfish bullshit. Like your notion of freedom or like an idea that you have that like, I'm not free because of this, superseding anyone else's well-being, that is just so sad to me and so shameful right and it's and it's, it's it's the same with a certain area of anti-vaxxers i don't think all anti-vaxxers are that intense with it but a lot of them are just like well you're telling me to do it politicians are telling me to do it no matter what it is i'm not doing it because that's not a free society that's big brother that's you know whatever it is it's like well please view the context people are dying yeah. People are dying and you're talking about your freedom. What about their freedom to live? <laughs> yeah. You know? And so that's where it gets dicey. You know, it gets a little nuanced, but it's both nuanced and simple at the same time. Just get the damn vaccine. Those are the people whose relatives passed away recently. And you're still kind of curious as to what the illness they had was, honestly, yeah. not to sound like yeah. a dick, but we all know no. people like that. So, For sure. um, I get the only other current event you kind of touched on there a little bit. They all kind of they all kind of blend together a little bit, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess, however you want to look at it. Uh, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, and defund the police, which go together, obviously. Um, one thing I've kind of mentioned on recent episodes is that, like, obviously these problems are still here, but like I haven't seen as much like action this year. I'm not sure if it's just because there isn't like as much. Yeah. Like, comparatively for to, yeah to like it seemed like year, last yeah. year there was just i mean granted you know more people were locked down and didn't have as much to do but it just seemed like this year you didn't really see as much of it and you know yeah i mean i guess that also there's so much of that's depend on what's happening you know like last year was such a perfect storm of events you know um and really got people out of their out of their butts and into the streets 
why that's not happening this year, I don't know. But I mean, all all for all of it. I think completely. Again, I think I think the big thing that a lot of people have a hard time with is like nuances or holding two ideas in your mind at once, right? How like when people say defund the police or fuck the police or whatever, they're not talking about your cousin or uncle that you know that's a good person who happens to be, be, be a police officer, right? That's not who they're, they're talking about. Your relative or whomever you know that is a police officer, they can still be a good person and the police can still fucking suck at the same time. Like those two things can happen at the same time. So I think as a people, we have a really hard time juggling two ideas like that. So when someone comes through and says, fuck the police, defund the police, you know, so-and-so who has a personal connection to the police gets on Facebook and says, how dare you do this? How dare you? I, my cousin's a police officer and I love him so much. People have a hard time juggling those, those kind of ideas, but uh, I think, yes, the police totally needs to be recontextualized. And I think the big thing, not only the individual circumstances of what happens, right? The actual police brutality is abhorrent and awful and needs to be resolved. But the thing that really needs to be examined is the mentality of the police. And not just as a group, a lot of the individuals there is a certain type of person and maybe you don't start out this way when you join the police but maybe being there over time you sort of become this type of person but because of the nature of the position there is a certain attitude with a police officer right and, and i think it just comes down to the nature of the role and the context of what it means in our society. We need to recontextualize what it is entirely. There needs to be a philosophical component to being a police officer, right? You, we need to all agree together on what it is a police is and does, and we just can't, right? We saw it, you know, like pre and mid Bush years when the police was starting to become more militarized, right? And no one ever stopped to ask, is this what we want? Is this like what the police should be doing? We just all with our like weapons fetish and, and police fetish, not you or I, but you know, the, the people who are into this type of thing just were like, yeah, go get them. That's what we, we like. Um, so again, the, the issues are super complicated, but I think in simplest forms, like, and this is what defund the police is all about. And, you know, it should be called recontextualize the police, but that just doesn't have a good ring to it. And also like a lot of people take issue with that saying of defund the police, but it's like, that's what protest phrases are. They're bold and they're loud and that's how they get attention. So anyone who's going to come in and talk about the semantics of that phrase and be like, Oh, I'm all for that, but it's just a poor choice of words. Well, who cares? It, it is meant to be a bold phrase, but to me, I read it as recontextualize the police. And truly, that is one small piece of the puzzle. But we as a people need, need recontextualizing. So 
I'm probably the last person who should be speaking to it just because again, I'm a white cis male person of privilege, but I think what is my role in this? Uh, it's just to be an ally and, and stand up for it. Not just, um, not just in the streets and protests, but in my life with my circle. And that's really hard. And I'm not the best at that. I, I, it's a constant effort to get better at that, but that's what my role in is it is. And I is, and I, I believe in that for sure. Um, obviously I would never vote for anybody like Donald Trump. However, I don't really think there's a huge difference between the left and the right. I do see the difference, obviously. Right. But I do think that it's a, the one thing we can thank like an idiot like Trump being in office for is everything that came out of it. Like the Black Lives Matter stuff. A lot of that might not have happened if he wasn't there. And especially like the Me Too movement might not have happened. Sure. I'm, not, I'm not saying he like caused that himself like purposely, but obviously like his stupidity and his actions kind of helped spearhead that. You know what I mean? He was like the perfect he was like the match that finally lit it all off. Yeah. You know, that, that was like the last straw essentially. Yeah. So of course, like you can, you know, he's to thank for that in a good way. And of course he didn't plan for that. By, he right. doesn't deserve any credit for it, right, but right, right. you know, like he, we maybe wouldn't have got there as quick without him. But I mean, think, think about the Me Too movement and just how, you see it in culture all the time when you watch old movies specifically, just how quickly the world has changed around that. And rightfully so. But I mean, geez, that is a movement that has come up so fast and, and so rightfully again. But like you watch movies from the 90s and 80s and there's just little things in that where you're just like, Jesus Christ. Like a big one that I always see is like how acceptable it was for older men to be dating younger, younger, younger women, or, or be talking about younger women, you know, women. And like, it was not creepy or weird at all as of like the early nineties. And that's not that long ago. Um, so I think the one thing, yes, we can thank Donald Trump for is he, he accelerated, accelerated a lot of necessary self-examination around that movement and other ones as well. And you're talking about movies like and things being accepted differently now and things changing like eddie murphy raw is like cited as like one of the funniest and like most influential like for comedians of that era but you go back and watch it now and there's no way that would possibly make it to theaters or like no. he every other word out of his mouth is like it, it would not right. he would be canceled or whatever for it like you know yeah. and that's it's just times are definitely completely different now now, one other thing I want to say about the cops, though, and I'm not going to say their names for obvious reasons, but like you and I know at least one, if not three mutual people that became police officers. I would love to get at least one of them on here to talk to them about all this kind of stuff, because at least at least the one that I think we're both thinking of that became a cop is not the type of person that we can think of when we think of cops. No, I don't I know. No, for certain is a good person. Yeah. Exactly. And and yeah. and is and is probably did it for the right reasons yeah. you know it'd be that's interesting what i'm saying to get their perspective so it's just it'd be interesting to get that perspective and then it'd also be just be interesting to see if, if they feel the same way we do on a lot of right, things right. that's why they joined to try to make things different you know i i think you know and that's a good example because because you know the the thing that like the left or like this is a really hard argument to to bring up because like i said i'm a white guy i i i hesitate to tell that movement how to do anything right like my role in that is to just listen to that movement and and offer allyship i i hesitate to say how they should or shouldn't do anything 
but you know, I think we all can admit that the left in general sometimes can, can shoot itself in the foot a little bit with, with certain ways they approach things. Again, I, I, I can't say that that's wrong because, you know, again, defund the police is a good example of this because that phrase has garnered a lot of criticism for being too over the top. And it's like, well, okay, but black people have been dying for decades in large numbers at the hands of the police. So you're going to come in and say, as a white person, maybe change your phrasing a little bit. Like how ridiculous, you know, that's just a ridiculous argument to hold. But when we think about these people that we know and these examples, they do take the brunt of that. And I'm sure they, they're the statistical outliers. We're not talking about them though. We're talking about the institution, but I would be very interested to, I have other, I have family member too, family members who, that I know are good people. I, and I've met police officers and in interactions that I'm sure are good people, but we're talking about the nature of the thing, yeah. right? And the institution for sure. But I, I think it would be very interesting to get that perspective. Who knows if they could even offer it, you know? I mean, yeah. I there's that. that. You know, because there's that whole, that's a very tight knit community, you know, yeah. I, that's a, they would probably garner some ostr ostracizing for sure. Yeah. I look at, I look at police like the mafia pretty much like they're, they're not gonna, they're not gonna talk. You know for what sure. I mean? So, for sure. Um, so the last couple of things, just a couple of little things here. Uh, the, the thing that's become like a staple of the podcast lately is, is getting like your, your Rochester Mount Rushmore. I don't know if you saw an outline of notes of things that I gave you. It could be like four people, places, or things that were influential to you. Mm. I know we've talked about a lot of stuff throughout the interview, so it seems like maybe nailing down four might be hard for you to do, but I think you could pretty yeah. easily come up with a lot. Yeah, well, I'll give you kind of a cheat, I guess. Well, let me say this. Um, Rory Van Grohl for sure is on that, um, just be, just as a, a person and just an in influence. I mean, I, 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 if you... What, what I did in Polar Bear Club, I, I learned from him, you know, I, I, I put my own spin on it, you know, like, but I, I, I learned it from him, like how I moved my body and engaged with the audience and, and, and performed and expressed myself like that, that came from him. Um, but everything we were talking about before, which is like the nature of the Rochester scene and how it's different. I think he was the big seed of that and, and setting the tone for that. Um, so he's up there for sure. Um, I, I, you, I, this is going to be cliche, but it's still very meaningful to me is of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? He has to be on there. He has to be on the Rush, Rochester Rushmore. Now, the thing that's conflicted about that is I don't think he was very like proud to be from Rochester though. That's the thing is I don't think he was like very vocal about being from Rochester. He didn't like hide from it, but he wasn't necessarily like a, a promoter of it, you know, but that being said, I still am very proud of the fact that he's from here and just as like a, a bit of a chip on my shoulder about being from Rochester and trying to scream from mountaintop that it's a cool place and a worthwhile place to the rest of the world. Like not only did we have an actor from our town, which a lot of towns have actors from, from and people will be like, oh, did you know so-and-so's from here? We had the best actor from our town. Like l l many people will say that this is the best of the best, right? That, that he was from Rochester. He was cut from this, this cloth. So I, 
as a person who was really into movies and just was into like performing, I always just was so thought it was so cool that he was from my town. So he's up there for sure. Um, a place, you know, I, I'll put the little theater and the Dryden and the Eastman house. I'll put them in one up there just because again, those are two things that I just think are so cool. And another thing that I think of like, Oh, every town has something like this and they really don't. And I count myself lucky to uh, have had it in my own. And the last, I'm going to do a cheat. I'm going to, I'm just going to say like, I'm going to do a little grouping of like, Rory again, Andrea from Redfern, Vula from Vula's, Brian and Jeff from Pizza Wizard and Swoburger. The Those people and those businesses kind of are like now, A, they're all hardcore kids doing them in a way, but they are what define like the culture of Rochester, like what it is as a city now. And they very much deserve to be on like the Mount Rushmore of Rochester. They are what make the city great now, presently, right? Um, they produce a, a, a product and a business that is on par quality-wise with any city you can name, hands down. And not only that, they do it in the way that we were all talking about of like the Rochester ethos. They do it with that to a T. And like, I just think that's really inspiring to me as an adult. And I think um, they deserve, anyone who's doing that type of business, those four that I named are just a sampling of it. Um, they deserve a lot of credit. You mentioned those businesses. I don't want to keep promoting the fact that I made it to the finals of that uh, city best of Rochester thing, but that's why I wanted to make the finals is on top of the promotion aspect, like to be, <clears throat> to be in a category with all those businesses and all those people that we consider like a lot of them contemporaries. Like that's just really cool to me because we have like, that's why I did those small business episodes last year too, to, to put a shine on that kind of stuff because we like, and that goes back to Rochester. I mean, I know every city has small businesses now, but like we have such a good network of all these people, many of them that came from our scene that now have all these businesses and it's, it's, they're all unique and they're all really cool. I lived in a lot of places. I, I mean, I grew up here. I lived in uh, New Haven, Connecticut for a while. I lived in White Plains, New York for a while. I lived in Jersey City, which is essentially another borough of New York City for about almost, almost five years. And of all of those places, and I'm probably biased, but I, I, I've tried to examine this and ask myself, is this really biased or is this just how cool Rochester is? And it's probably a little bit of both, but I truly think like of all the time I spent in those cities, I could never find a place that I liked to eat at or go out to half as much as the places around here. And I really think that's more than just because I'm from here and this is my home. I think that's, that's true. And of the people, a lot of people are moving to Rochester in the pandemic that are not from here, right? A lot of my friends who maybe their spouse is from here and they're from somewhere else and they lived in New York City or they lived elsewhere and now they moved back here. And all of them, the spouse or partner who's not from here sees the light and came through and was like, damn, this place is cool as hell. And it really is. And it's part and parcel because of, of those types of businesses. 
I don't have much else to add to this conversation, but there's one other thing I want to touch on that you didn't really mention it at all, but you mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman and it makes me think of this. I was going to mention this at the beginning of the episode, but I had like, you know, like 10 different things to plug or promote at the beginning of the episode today. So I just kind of forgot about it. Philip Seymour Hoffman, the way he passed away, I had a neighbor for like the last five or six years that I watched like turn in like deteriorate basically like and I know I was never a nice person to her so I'm not trying to say she was a friend of mine like I was an asshole to her and these last few months I was like a real dick to her and like I I know what she was on I know what she was doing a lot of the same corner stores that I go to buy like blunts and stuff at I would see her like like trading in like stolen goods and trying to get money for those so I knew what she was doing I can't really like judge anybody where like when I'm smoking weed and stuff like that but that's besides the point long story short that person died of a drug overdose last week and she was my neighbor. Like I could have been, I'm not saying I could have saved her life or done anything like that, but I'm just, my point is you saw it. You we saw all, it happening. We all see yeah. that every day. We all know people in our lives that like, like none of us are like a savior. Like we can't just go out around like helping, but like, like do something. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I'm thinking, that's all I've been thinking about since I know I found out she passed. Like I could have at least said hi to her and been nice to her and not been a dick. You know what I mean? Like, right. Right. There's a lot of people like out there like that. I'm not saying like we need to go out there and like start like a recovery center or shit like that. Like, but I'm just saying but, like if you know somebody who has a problem, just be aware. Be yeah. aware. I, I think the big thing is because people like that, maybe not your neighbor, but but maybe you know Philip Seymour Hoffman or I. I, I lost a friend uh, to drug overdose a couple years ago, and that's primarily who I'm thinking of. They don't they're not going to ask, beg you for help. They're not, most of the time, those people are very good at presenting like everything's okay. Um, So I I think that's the big lesson in these types of situations is always remember that things are not always what they seem. And people in general are very good at, at presenting. Yeah. Like, like you're, you're, people are just good at, at, they know what it looks like to have their shit together yeah. at, at face value. But yeah. then when the doors close, that's when the true stuff yeah. starts going down. So again, it's, it makes it hard to intervene. It makes it hard to know when to intervene. But I think to have that awareness helps to just understand people in general. And, yeah. and understanding people is a good thing in the end. And, and when you look at addiction like this, it's one of the hardest things when you're not an addict it's hard from the outside to understand yeah if you can try to understand it it is a very good opportunity to grow your empathy and understand and more about the human condition because it's difficult to understand what you do about it as a person seeing it unfold that's hard to say but being aware of it is a good good place to start Going back to my Canada ban from early in our conversation, uh, I've obviously dealt with uh, addiction problems in the last few years. So I could, that's also why this is very relatable to me. Like this could have easily been me. I, I definitely have not fucked with hard drugs at all or anything. Right, right. But like drinking and stuff like that and being around a lot of people that did drugs and stuff. Like I, I just know that I'm not like that many uh, steps away from being this. Kind exactly. Of you know what I mean? So to see it that close to me and to see the deterioration, it's definitely relatable to me. And, and But so- also like, um, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, like, like this guy had it all, you know, he, he had it all. He had money and a family. He had the respect and adoration of everyone in his field. Um, so if it can 
touch him. It can touch anybody. Yep. You know, you just, you just never know. Yeah. We all like can, if you're walking down the street and you see someone who's visibly a drug addict begging for change, sure. Th- th- sometimes it looks like that. It doesn't always look like that. It, right. it sometimes is very, it can be very high functioning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I live off Dewey, so I see it all now, but it's just, you know, I, I, that's how I knew what that girl was doing. Cause I've like, again, like I frequent the corner stores around here. So I'm not really wanting sure. to judge people. Um, but like, I've seen people do that before, like trading in like goods to like try to get money. So I knew immediately, right. like when I started coming out of there with the bag that time, I was like, Oh my God, like this is Tough this to only going to end a couple of ways, you know? Exactly. And, and, and like, it's, it's weird when you watch it, you watch the journey, right? Like yeah. you see it and, and, and yeah, just naturally, I mean, when I lost a friend a couple of years ago, I, we had no one, we didn't have any idea, you know, it was just out of nowhere. Even then I still felt this guilt. Like yeah. it was, was there something I could have done or was there something I was yeah. seeing that I wasn't picking up on? And it just is natural. And I don't know about you, but that makes me feel kind of like selfish at the same time too. Like I'm worrying about like how I feel about it when I should just be worrying about like the person who we lost. Which again, right. I'm not really friends with her. Like I, I don't, I'm not trying to sound like an asshole, but I don't really, I don't, I, at the same time, I don't really feel bad. You know what I mean? Like, but I also right. just feel like I could have done more. You know what I mean? Exactly. It is weirdly yeah. selfish though, because it, in the end, doesn't have anything to do with you. Yeah. But, 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 but you did, you did still see, a, but that's what it is to be a person, right? Like, like yeah. you, you saw another person going through that yeah. and you saw it end. And regardless of the fact that you didn't have a relationship, it still fucks with you a little bit, you know, yeah. it still, still fucks with you just on a human level. I, I wish I had some other topics or we would have talked about this earlier because I don't really want to end on such a downer, but uh <laughs> don't really have a ton of other stuff oh, to ask, man. unfortunately. Uh, um, what an ending. Yeah, hey kids, don't do drugs, I guess. Uh <laughs> you know. Just um do you I guess obviously we talked about bands, like do you have like projects you want to plug or, or anything like that? I'm I'll, I'll put in the show notes obviously links to all sure. this stuff, but like what like what do you want to uh, plug that's coming up and stuff like that, I guess. Yeah, I'll just plug my current stuff. I mean, Shy Tooth, we released a record in the middle of the pandemic, so we didn't really get to play it out a lot, but it's it's up on all the streaming sites. It's called Ultra Suede. Um, it's uh, available on Dad's Dash Records if you want to buy the vinyl. Um, and we're going to start playing some shows again as much as we can before it becomes less feasible to do. Um, so there's that, um, and I'm playing second guitar in Bad Bloom, which is another really cool band. Again, all on Spotify. So just that's it. That's a little stuff. And and the movie club is uh, it's open to the public, and it's also totally doable on whatever capacity anyone wants to do it. So if you don't want to come to the video meetings, you don't have to. Just join the chat, or or just watch along in home at home and throw a little message in the chat every now and again. You can do it to whatever capacity is meaningful to you. Um, and Discord is not a hard app to figure out. The link to that is all in my like social bios. Jimmy PBC is my Twitter and Instagram. An, an old friend of mine from Detroit, I don't know if you ever met him, his name's Ian Courtney. Uh, I'm gonna have him on a couple episodes down the line. He was in like uh, Razzle Dazzle, I don't know if you remember them. I know that name. I and I think he's friends with some of my Detroit friends as well. Probably, yeah, you, you would re- you would recognize him. Uh, I'm gonna have him on a couple episodes. But long story short, he's really into like film and stuff too. So I'll probably cool. let him know you're doing this, and it might be somebody you want to check out. You know, there's a couple Detroit hardcore people in that already too. I wonder really? if he knows them. Yeah, this guy yeah. Tony, he's in there. Yeah, yeah, I'll definitely tell him about it. Maybe yeah. he already knows those people or whatever. Um, yeah, I guess that's pretty much like I said. All I got to, to do. Any other uh, shout outs or anything you want to give or anything like that or. 
Oh, I've gabbed enough. I've kept you up. <laughs> Hopefully not too late and dad duties will be fulfillable tomorrow. <laughs> Hopefully he sleeps until eight again like he did tonight. For people that aren't aware, it's 1.30 in the morning right now. <laughs> um, all right. Yeah, I guess that'll wrap up the episode then. Um, thanks, everybody, for supporting the podcast. Thanks to Jimmy for doing the interview. I know it was a long time in the works. Um, if this episode comes out in time, keep voting for us in the City Best of Rochester contest. Uh, future episodes, uh, like I mentioned, obviously, Ian Courtney will be on here. A couple guys from Hourglass, Dan Butson, Justin Kern. We're going to have my buddy Jim Labatt's on and do the top 50 breakdowns at some point and plenty more. So just give us a follow on Instagram, Enterprise Hardcore Podcast. Thanks again, everybody. Uh, see everyone real soon and stay safe.